Hello again, friends! And you are our friends, and welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornedge Drive-Thru right here on another pleasant day, maybe for some of you, maybe not for some others who are on this show. We will find out more in a moment. We will have wrestling talk, classic wrestling talk, as well as some reviews later on in the future, and questions, and so much more. I'm the star, uh, excuse me, I'm not the star, I'm the host of the show, the great Brian Last. here's the star, Jim Cornette. Just god damn, just god damn it. Just, what the, f- I'm the one on drugs, and you sound like it. What the fuck, I'm on the, on the Advil allopurinol cocktails, baby, and I've, I've got so much of this stuff coursing through my veins and you're the one that sounds like you're chemically altered in some fashion why is that on this program i don't know i wish maybe it's osmosis well os- osmosis or or his brother neither one of them has anything to do with it those mosis boys they were the fucking scourge of the county around here a long time ago but nevertheless it's another day to talk about some wrestling we do have some classic wrestling talk spurred on by an old friend of the the program here, but I'm just, I haven't had a good night's sleep in four or five nights now between between the gout and my sick little puppy. But now good news here at the top of the program, Harley Quinn was more energetic this morning than she's been in the past couple of weeks and had a good little appetite until we gave her her stomach medicine yesterday. She had a good little appetite. And the vet that's checking her out and doing her updated tests, our friend in Versailles, said she looked much happier. So that's hopefully progressing in the right direction. We got some work to do there. But I can't get a night's sleep between worrying about the sick baby and my sore toe. Last night, I'd already tucked myself in bed, and I was later than than normal anyway. And I said, I didn't take the Advil. And I said, well, I don't feel too bad right now. I'll, I'm comfortable. I don't want to wake myself. I'll go to sleep. I'll, I'll just not worry about it. Three o'clock in the morning. Ah! Going to somebody with a pair of pliers on my toe. Had to go down in the, in the cold all the way to the TV room to get my Advil. So I apologize if I'm a little, ah! a little hoarse today or a little raspy. I need to get a good night's sleep as well. How do you people do this? I was talking to Stacy the other day. Yesterday, as a matter of fact. You people, meaning you, Brian Last, a person who has actual children. How the fuck can you, uh, how are you not just a raw nerve end all the fucking time? Afraid they might eat some bad poop out in the yard or whatever? Well, I mean, you worry about everything with your kids, but you don't want to overdo it, and you don't want to send them into the yard if you think there's lots of raw poop around. Where are you living? Well, we, you know, Sewage there's, City? There's, well, there's, there's a lot of poop? poop in the world. There's raccoon poop and deer That's poop true. and mole poop. No, I, anyway. grew, I grew up on the water with lots of bird poop. I've had enough poop in my life. And fish poop. Fish poop? If you're near the water. I didn't really have as much a problem with that. It didn't land on the ball field. Well, it depends on how hard you cast. But anyway... You just think the poop flies out of them as you reel them in? Well, no. When you cast and the thing hits the water, boom, it's splashy. Because have you seen the thing? You know, they they shoot the the ultraviolet light 
on on like bathrooms and places and restaurants or hotels to see if there's fluids and things like that all over the yeah. goddamn place. And uh, the, if I was a wrestler, I'd invest in one of those and bring it with me on the road. Well, one of them, they goddamn uh, on one of the kitchen nightmares segments. They went to the bathroom and shot that, and there was fucking spots on the ceiling. And I'm like, what the fuck? And then I'll have you know that I read this, um, oh, several years ago now, that those high-volume flush toilets, that you, you go in these newer buildings and they, it's like it's a goddamn suction into another world where you flush the thing, and instead of a nice little toilet flush, you go, and the whole thing, instantly goes away those things basically fling small particulates of water containing fecal matter and urinary discharge all over the walls and you if you're close enough to it that's why penn station smells the way it does well i think that's the drunks laying there just urinating in their own pants and then it running down their pant leg and down the hill to join up with other drunk bums urine where it becomes a stream and then a river and then finally flows down the stairs like the goddamn hallway of the shining and envelops you as you try to get on the train. Well, there isn't a hill in Penn Station, but perhaps the escalator would work. The escalator will work. You were on that escalator in Penn Well, at least the Amtrak side. I don't know what side we were on. I, it, I was on the other side, all right, of that whole thing. <laughs> With Camp Cornet members, Mini Vader and, uh, was it Mini Mankind? Who were you with yeah. there? Well, no, I just had Mini Vader. Oh. Because he, it was a single match. He was wrestling, I think, Mini Mankind. But we didn't have Mini Mankind there when we were shooting the video of me trying to pick the Mexican midget up so he could reach the urinal, even though the urinal was only 12 inches off the ground and it blew Vince McMahon's goddamn sight gag that he'd spent three hours in the limousine on the way down there talking about. But we didn't have many mankind with us because that would have broken kayfabe. Made the business look like a joke. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so I found out some, th I got some questions here. I got some comments. Uh-oh. Number one, when is this fucking World Cup going to be over with? The World Cup? Why is the that bothering World you? The World Cup fucking... Because every morning, for it seems like the past month, I get up, my favorite local news station is WDRB, and they're a Fox affiliate, and instead of my local newscast on the proper station, I'm for the past two weeks, at, at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, I'm getting women's soccer on the network. No wonder goddamn network television is going to hell in a handbasket, as Mama Cornette used to say. Women's soccer, when you first open your eyes. Because I guess it's on, the, uh, it's on the other side of the world, and they got a different time zone, but that's actually not my fault. I didn't have anything to do with it. But the point is, I have to go over to the secondary channel to view my goddamn morning news. I would think that more people in Louisville, Kentucky care about what the weather is going to be than they do who won the, the, the women's soccer. How long does this thing go on? It's been, it's been weeks. I'm not a soccer fan, let alone women's soccer. I know there is an audience for it. I happen to not be in that audience, so I couldn't really tell you. You is know that, any... that famous expression, soccer is the sport of the future, and it always will be. 
Well, there you go. And, and we're not trying to, to piss off our friends across the pond because we know it's quite big over there. But there, 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 I don't know that there's the audience for the World Cup of soccer or football, as they more properly call it over there in its original home, over here in, in the goddamn states is what I'm saying. But it's taken forever. Can you imagine if the Super Bowl lasted a month and they had both men's and women's divisions? No, I can't imagine that at no. all. But that's what we got. And I want to hear about the, this is the greatest thing ever, the Jefferson County School System bus fiasco. Have you heard of, has this made the national news yet? I don't know what you're talking about. Now, Jefferson County is where, is that where you live? Is that Louisville? That is That is the greater Louisville metropolitan area. And the first day of school was last Wednesday. And for weeks on the news. Yeah, well, I don't know what they do anymore. It used to be after fucking the first of September when I was a kid. But now I yeah. guess they, they penalize these kids these days because there's so much more to learn. They need an extra two or three weeks in school to, to learn it now. Since I was a kid, there's more history now. But anyway, the fr- they've been talking for weeks on the news that they were going to have this new bus system and that they were going to have staggered start times for different, I guess, grades or I don't know how this shit works. I don't have a dog in the fight. You probably know more about it than I do, but you don't live in Jefferson County. So maybe then that's a fruitless task to ask you what the fuck's going on. But nevertheless, so they they have this new bus system and the staggered start times and the all this new state-of-the-art fucking plan in place to get the kids to school and back home again. And they've been talking about it on the news for weeks. And they have the first day of school. And the goddamn buses are so fucking verklempt and bum-fuzzled and the routes are too long and the Drivers are saying, we don't know what the fuck they're expecting us to do. And some of the kids didn't get to school till like two hours late. And then the last kid got home after school at like 10 o'clock that night. And because there was such a, a flummox of all this, I was trying to just go to my little local post office over here, which is near a high school. And... There was a line of cars in every direction trying to get in that thing because a lot of people just gave up on the buses and said, fuck it, I'm taking my kid to school. So after the first day of school, they closed school again. And and that was one week ago today. And they are saying they're going to start back like grade school kids tomorrow. High school kids don't even go back till next week. And they're putting GPSs on the buses, and they're, I don't know what the fuck they're doing. But that was, uh, so I'm sure the kids are happy. Hey, we started, we did one day, we get another week and a half off. But then they're going to have to, well, I guess that's probably the best thing. They could just cut out, like, I don't know, the worst years in American history, maybe 2016 to 2020, they don't have to teach that in school anymore. Actually, that may be more important to teach as a cautionary tale to never let it happen again. But that's what happened. And did you know, Brian, also, I've talked about my cell phone that I don't like, that I don't use. But I found out something about it. I've got voicemail. 
I don't know many, I don't know how many, but I may have like a year's worth of voicemails to whoever has my cell phone number and thinks that I still use it. Because when I've told you the story, when I got this phone to replace the other phone, it was perfectly fine, but they said it was too old and we're not going to service it anymore. You can't get anything on it anymore because it's, it's, oh, it's 10 years old. Oh, golly. Fuck. Talk about planned obsolescence. So I got this new phone, but I haven't gone anywhere. So I don't use my cell phone unless I'm away from home because it's not a goddamn real phone that plugs into the wall like Alexander Graham Bell intended. It's meant for traveling. Well, I ain't been traveling, so I don't use my cell phone. And a long time ago when I first got it, somehow I figured out because it doesn't look like my old phone in terms of you can't easily see through the same method who has called you or if you have a voicemail message. But months ago, is something gave me the, the knowledge to press whatever it is to get to my voicemail, right? Because I, I guess I better check and see if anybody's called. And it said, it, 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 the recording then said, hello. You haven't set your voicemail up yet. You can follow me in these three easy steps. And I immediately hung up and said, well, fuck that. Number one, I don't talk to goddamn robots on purpose when I can absolutely avoid it. And number two, three easy steps on this fucking phone is bullshit. It ain't going to be easy for me. But if I don't have a voicemail set up, then I'm not going to miss any voicemails because people can't leave them. And I'm not ever going to know they called anyway because I never turned the fucking thing on, right? Well, then yesterday, as we'll get to in a minute, I had to actually go away from home. I turned the cell phone on. They finally got him. What? What now? No, I, I didn't go like out in a public place. It was, it was out in a more private place, but it was still away from the property where I... I had to have the ability to communicate with home to make sure that Harley was okay. So when I turned it on, Hotchkiss knew I was going to have it. And the point is, he had, he told me when I saw him, he said, well, I called you and left you a voicemail. I said, well, how'd you leave me a voicemail on my cell phone? I ain't got it set up. And that's when I realized, I guess it means that I haven't set up an outgoing message or I haven't set up whatever the fuck you're supposed to set up, but you can still leave one. So now at some point, when I have the time, I got to find the instruction book to fucking figure out how to get the goddamn voicemail again to set up the voicemail in order to see whether anybody's called me and left me one over the last year. More I say that out loud, the more I think I'm just going to act like they haven't. Right. What do you do in a situation like that? What do you mean? What situation? Well, uh, if, if you thought that you didn't have voicemails, so you didn't worry about it, and then a year later you find out people might have been leaving you voicemails. I mean, if it's a year later, I don't give a shit. If it's like I missed something last week that was really important, that may get mad. But if it's a year ago, someone called to say hello and they didn't talk to him, I'd Probably deal with it. Well, what if a year ago your doctor doctor's office called and said you've got a year to live? And time is running out as I'm retrieving the messages? Yeah, then I guess then that make you might make you want to 
cut off the rest of the messages? I don't know. I don't know what would happen. You don't seem to have these problems. I don't know why you don't have any of these normal everyday problems that I have. <laughs> normal everyday problems. Every time I say something like this, you look at me like I got flaming turds hanging out of my mouth. I didn't say they were in flames. All right. Anyway, speaking of things that are going to be hot, but not on fire, <laughs> the Midnight Express action figures have arrived. Finally. They have arrived in the greater Louisville metropolitan area, and that's where I was. Of course, I was telling you when last we spoke, like two whole days ago on the air here, that I was concerned because my truck had been in the shop. It was almost a cosmic fireball last week rolling down the highway, and it wasn't going to be ready on Monday. There was going to be a prognosis of pouring rain on Monday, and we were going to be accepting delivery of 4,000 pounds of, of, of precious Midnight Express merchandise, potentially in the pouring rain, uh, trying to get it in a storage unit with me with one foot and uh, all the other things going on and, and potentially uh, having a hitchhike or have Stacy drive me over there to meet the feather bottoms. But finally, everything worked out. We were able to call and schedule it for Tuesday. The weather was better. My foot was a little bit better. The truck was repaired finally. And everything is now in our possession and ready for the big pre-order on-sale date, September 2nd, Saturday at noon Eastern time, for the Midnight Express 40th anniversary action figure four-pack set, which, as we've been talking about, not only comes with the first and last ever four-pack of all the members of the Midnight Express, Bobby, Dennis, Stan, and myself. And my figure is a completely different design than any their, uh, color scheme than anything we've done before. Not only you get that, but also a 28-page full-color book with copious amounts of photographs and milestones of our careers, big gates and crowds, championships, contract disputes, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and an autographed picture of, depending on the package you get, there are a few pictures that we have with all four of our signatures. Otherwise, the majority of the packages have Dennis's stands, and I will be personalizing them, and a certificate of authenticity, I wish we could get like Alan Napier or Sebastian Cabot to do certificate of authenticity that we could apply to that. But anyway, uh, certifying that all the autographs are genuine and this is one of a limited edition of 2000. We've never done it before. And folks, believe me, with the work it's been, we ain't doing it again. This, for the 40th anniversary, is the action figure set of all four of us. If you're going to get one, this is the one you better get because there ain't going to be no more. And as I said, that begins at jimcornett.com. Pre-orders on Saturday, September 2nd at noon. You can always order anything else, any other piece of merchandise on the website, and we encourage you to. T-shirts, books, DVDs, pictures, Cult of Cornett certificates, etc. For the month of September, if you want to pre-order the action figure set of the Midnight, you can't combine it with other merchandise. We don't want to 
be taking your money and holding it for several weeks while we all, you also want a t-shirt or a picture or whatever, we're going to get slammed. And we don't know how long these are going to last, maybe six days, maybe six months, whatever. But what we're going to do is we're going to battle through the main brunt of the assault so that everybody gets their stuff for Christmas by taking pre-orders in September. You can lock yours in if you get in early, and then they will begin mailing in the month of October as when the general on sale, if any are left, uh, begins for the Christmas season the first Saturday in October. And we're smoothing this thing out. And you've already requested, Brian, two sets because you're greedy and you don't want to pay more than 10% markup over retail price. I'm really, I'm disappointed in you. That isn't true. I did request two sets. I said I'd pay whatever price. I want one to open up and play with and one, of course, to stock away. And I don't need any autographs because I've, I have enough of your autographs. I don't need any more. Yeah, you'd need my autograph. Every once in a while when I have to bail you out and I have to sign that fucking bond release, you need my autograph. What happened to no one will ever know about this, Brian? Don't worry, you can trust me, Brian. What happened to I, that? I didn't mention any specifics. There's no way they can really narrow it down any. But nevertheless, um, and as we mentioned also, um, I appreciate everybody that's uh, given us feedback on since we made the announcement of this. We've been working on it for two years. It was the last, obviously, project when I talked to Taryn, Bobby's daughter. She said it was the last time he signed his name was on the figures contracts for this two years ago, a couple, couple of, actually two years ago, two weeks ago. And uh, his kids and grandkids, as well as Dennis and his wife, Teresa, Stan and Maria, uh, and myself and Stacy are going to be splitting the proceeds equally because this is going to be the last, you know, anniversary. 2023 and 2024, the 40th anniversary is the last one for the midnight because we're not going to do another one officially that Bobby can't be involved in. He's still involved in this. But anyway, if you go to jimcornett.com right now, you can click on the home page and it'll take you to the pictures, all the information, everything that you get, when the pre-orders begin. And I appreciate everybody for supporting us one more time on this one because it's 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 the only thing that we didn't get a chance to do really was a set of action figures. We've done the book, we've done the appearances, we've done videos, we did reunion matches. So now we got one more thing that we can check off the list. And boy, howdy, I'll tell you what. Here's the deal, Brian, with how these things got here. Because obviously they've, they've been on a boat, they've been in several different trucks, but finally, you know, the Featherbottoms have a, have a storage unit over in Southern Indiana. And which, uh, obviously, since they're doing the fulfillment of all the Cornets Collectibles merchandise, you know, we got our stuff stacked. They got one with a high ceiling because we got stuff stacked up because then, you know, they need some room themselves. And they've got this bunk bed apparatus where they all three of them, Fanny and Felcher and Hotchkiss, sleep one on top of another in the corner on the bunk beds, right? What? But when we got these fit, because this was six pallets of action figure sets weighing 700 pounds per pallet. 
And so to get that stuff in there too, we had to move because Felcher and Hotchkiss don't mind, but Fanny loved the porta potty. But it took up too much space. We had to get rid of that. So she has to, because they don't mind going out in the yard of, you know, Felcher and Hotchkiss, but she liked to, but hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But anyway, once we got the porta potty out of there, we, because of the configuration of the storage unit facility, the giant truck that they sent couldn't get into the actual aisleway or the breezeway or whatever you call it, where our unit is. They can only, they can get in the front gate and go about 40 feet and boom. And I'll tell you what, this badass guy, he looked like a brown-haired Greg Allman. But he could drive that truck. It was a giant, you know, 18-wheeler transport truck like you see out on the interstate. And he backed this thing through this gate into this storage facility. But we still had to pallet jack six 700-pound pallets about 250 feet and get them over the concrete lip of the goddamn unit to be able to get these things put away. And that's before you take into consideration the the giant order of shipping supplies, the crush-proof boxes, the bubble wrap, the chipboard for extra reinforcement. These things are going to be wrapped up tighter than Dick's hat band when they come to the consumers. So, But the feather bottoms are all over this. Even if it does lead to a few potentially sleepless nights for Fanny, she'll get over it. There's a bush right outside the, the storage unit. So I don't feel too badly. But All it was right. a long day. And a long story. Well, boy, just take a poop right all over it. I thought you'd be excited that we got them all in the storage unit. I'm so excited. I mean, I'm a little worried about where they're going to sleep now that you took their bunk beds, but... No, they've still got the bunk beds in there. We just had to take out the porta potty All right. Well, you can get these wonderful figures with, I guess, no uh, poop spread around, no... High velocity toilets anywhere near them, and you know what? As a matter of fact, that's a good thing we did that. In you, even if they'd had more room, it's probably best we took the porta potty out so they wouldn't be next to the action figure. That's right, cleanliness. Cleanliness is next to the feather bottoms. Well, maybe somewhat near the feather bottoms. I don't know about next to them, but Jim, before we get going any further with the show here, and once again, JimCornette.com to check out those figures. Some breaking news. Uh oh. And this uh, goes towards the continuing saga of, does Colin Thompson owe you money? We've talked about it on this show. Our former advertising agent took off with our money. Not just our money, millions of dollars from a variety of programs. Right now, from what we believe, there are shows trying to get Colin or in arbitration with Colin. There are other people looking at criminal charges. There are other people looking at other things they could do. and. We haven't revealed yet Civil what we're going to do. Civil litigation is another option. Well, we haven't revealed yet what we're going to do. But in the middle of all this, we were told that the only way that we would be repaid the money that was taken from us, even though we did the work, the work was paid for, somehow the money disappeared in between, the only way we would be paid is to sign a multi-year agreement with Podcast One. And we would be repaid for the financial fraud with Podcast One stock, which was pre-IPO. Well, the headline, I have this article here from Inside Radio, the most trusted news in radio. Seven hours ago, as we are recording, 
Mm-hmm. NASDAQ clears Live One to begin trading Podcast One on its own. Live One's long delayed plan to spin out Podcast One into its own freestanding, publicly traded company is now closing in on the end. Live One says it has received approval to begin trading Podcast One on the NASDAQ exchange. It comes after the company said last week that it expects Podcast One to split off and begin trading on its own by September 15th in a move that will value the company at $200 million. (laughs) See, that's the problem. You pump a company that's not worth anywhere near that up with this stock so that it is, and then when everything returns to reality, what happens? But let me and con- and 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 again, and this weasel Ellen, Rob Ellen, that uh, is the CEO of Live One slash Podcast One, just is a total entering, mook, is entering it. He's a big mookster, is entering into this agreement with apparently well-known fraudster uh, Colin Thompson, of formerly of Cast Media. Well, now he is of Cast Media. He's the only one. All the other employees have quit and are variously suing him or looking for work. And the reason why that Ellen is, is holding his nose and suffering the existence of the fraudster that he's dealing with is because the lack of cash but potential podcast programs that Colin Thompson could bring him pumped up numbers so that he could engage in this IPO and inflate the numbers of the company, the numbers of the podcast, the price potentially of the stock, all to do this. This is basically what we have apparently found out here by everything that we can determine. And again, just recently in an interview, Rob Ellen defended Colin Thompson, said he's a terrific guy. It's not his fault that the money pulled out. What money? The money was paid in. He didn't pay everyone else. Yeah, that our, money didn't our, pull out. Our money was 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 shoved in, and he decided to pull it out and put it in a different place for it got to us, along with many other podcasts and many other people producing podcasts. But they live one podcast one doesn't care about that as long as they get certain assets of cast media that will artificially inflate their numbers, even though there is no, really no cast media now. And all of the programs listed by cast media, the only reason they're still even entertaining the thought of doing business with this Cretan is see if they can get some of the money that he owes. Them. Right. And now they're going to still sell stock in a company based on Kaka. That's right. A company that isn't turning a profit, I believe, based on the financials we've seen. And they got Colin Thompson involved, the guy who is being accused by us and other shows of stealing their money. He's not a creative force. He's He's a boob. And they're going to have him attached. How long was he in bed with them? He's the subject of a class action lawsuit against him by his own employees already before he told him he was going bankrupt. By the way, a quick aside, I don't know if we've talked about this. Remember we talked early on when we told the story, Stephen got in touch with Colin's attorney, his entertainment attorney, and then that guy decided to try to go around Stephen and come to me directly, mm-hmm. Neil Sacker. Do you know what he's known for? What is he, what is he known for, Brian? A bunch of ex-employees of Cass got in touch with me, and then one or two other people who I guess either, I want to say someone knew his daughter, and I want to say another person just researched him. 
This guy, Colin Thompson's entertainment attorney, was the man working for Harvey Weinstein. No! This was the guy, whatever Harvey Weinstein had going on for all those years, apparently this guy was working for him. This guy was Harvey Weinstein's attorney. And apparently he brags about it. So that's who's on Team Colin. And we'll talk more about Mr. Sacker in the future. Back to this uh, article here. While a NASDAQ debut date has not been set, Live One says the stock ticker PODC has been reserved as the trading symbol for Podcast One's common stock. Speaking at an investment... Hey, you to P- wait a P-O-D-C? Yes. Piss off, damn creditors. <laughs> speaking at an investor conference, speaking of creditors, speaking at an investor conference in May... Ellen said that he expects the share price to be between $8 and $12 at its debut. I wonder what he thinks it'll be at in six months. But What anyway. kind of lunatic would pay any amount of money for this fraudulent operation they are uh, perpetrating here? Well, I will continue. It has been 13 months since Live One first announced its plans. It was marked by a series of delays including most recently a request from NASDAQ to receive audit information ahead of Podcast One's debut on the exchange. During a conference call with analysts in June, CEO Robert Ellen, a.k.a. The Mook, called the request, quote, not an unreasonable ask, despite being months into the deal. When the move happens, Live One will continue to control Podcast One holding about 74% of its shares. In a special dividend, Live One shareholders are expected to receive 0.48 shares in Podcast One, which is an increase from 12% announced earlier to 19%. So wait a minute, because you're the the expert, I'm just a mere layman here, just the small-town bird investor. But basically, they're trying to create a a completely bullshit company with bullshit numbers here and sell stock to other people in it, but keep enough of the stock that they now have stock that's worth a bunch of money, even though they've done absolutely fuck all of nothing. Right. They have 74% of the stock. You know, Vince McMahon and his family had controlling interest, but that was a different level of stock. That was, uh, you know, it was class A and class B. Here... There are no real specifics other than 74% of the shares would be owned by podcasts, or would be owned by Live One, excuse me. Continue on with this. By going public, Ellen said last week it will allow Podcast One to grow by offering potential acquisition targets, a combination of cash and stock. He revealed the company has 10 acquisitions in the works, which range in size from 40 million down to 5 million as they look to consolidate podcast networks and individual shows that may be too small to attract the attention of larger industry players. Here's a quote. It's an exciting time for us to be able to roll up the small shows because there really is no home for them anymore. Oh, they've rolled up some small shows, all right. Even some big ones. I think we're the only game in town. And here's the final paragraph. Live One has already struck a pair of deals in recent months to bulk up its podcast business. It has signed a letter of intent to buy some shows that have been part of the podcast network cast media in an all-stock deal. All-stock! 
No price tag has been announced, but Live One says if the deal goes through, it will boost revenue at Podcast One by up to $10 million a year. Ellen has said, How is it going to boost their revenue by up to $10 million a year when they're bankrupt and he can't pay the people the money he owes them right now? Because the revenue streams are there. Rob Ellen and Live One's position is we don't give a fuck. We're, we want Colin to work with us, so we care about him in that way, but we don't care what malfeasance, we don't care what he's done to any of you. We want you guys to come to us because you have no other place to go. And the revenue streams are still working. The advertisers paid. Rob Ellen's hoping that instead of Colin holding the money, he'll be able to hold the money. But it's not, it's not the holding of the money, it's the delivering of the money that is the most important thing. Hey, my old friend Rob, fuck you, by the way. Rob and fuck you, Colin, by the way, just from JC over here, because there is another way, there is another path, and we have taken it. And we don't have to deal with you fucking crooks anymore, or at all. And we're just as good as we've ever been, and as successful, and as well listened to. And other people can do the same thing. So I'm just, before Brian finishes this article here, I'm just suggesting that everybody that's associated with Podcast One or Live One in the podcast business, tell them, fuck you, it can be done and successfully on your own because we're doing it. That's right. There are other solutions. And the fact that this guy, again, the strong arm tactic, if you want any of the money that was stolen via financial fraud, you better sign this deal. And then you have to accept our stock. It may be worth 8 to $12 at launch. It may be worth 90 cents in two years. And by the way, it could go the other way. It could be worth millions of dollars in a couple of years. We don't want it. If the stock was that good, give me all my cash. And if I like it enough, I'll buy it on my own. I don't want you to give me your garbage stock. I want the option to say, no, I'm not buying that garbage stock. So all of this is happening. Rob Ellen's trying to strong arm these shows. You hear these quotes. We're the only game in town. There's nowhere else to go. The 80-20 deals are gone. This guy is trying- Everything we've done and everything we've got is fictitious. Everything that makes money for podcasters isn't what benefits Live One. Live One only benefits if Live One makes money. Whether they pay the podcasters, whether they pay Sound Exchange, who they owe, what, close to $10 million to? Doesn't matter. Paying people out isn't the issue. They just want to make the money for themselves. There is a way. You can build your own audience. You can control your own advertising. You can keep everything in-house. We've mostly done it in the past. Now we've completely done it. Other shows can do it too. You don't need Podcast One holding you hostage. By the way, notice Podcast One doesn't really have much of a wrestling portfolio. The wrestling business is hip to Podcast One being bullshit and has been for a long time. So don't, I don't want to hear, you know, he could go pretend in these statements for Wall Street or whoever he's trying to impress, whoever's money he's trying to steal and say all these great things about his company. If you're in podcasting, let alone in wrestling podcasting, you know that Podcast One is a complete fucking joke. Well, but now hold on here a second. Maybe not. Because you said the wrestling business kind of has figured it out, but there's a lot of people in the world, and I would think because everybody in the world has a podcast, folks, if you're out there in the cult of Cornette, if you're in our audience, 
you know what's going on because we're telling you, but do you know people that do podcasts about raising ducks or podcasts about cooking fucking fritters or whatever, any podcast about any subject, if you know somebody that does that, ask them if they know what's going on with Podcast One, Live One, Cast Media, these deals, whether they might be involved or just may have a way to not be involved in the future with this because they've been warned. I think that might be worth calling somebody. Get on your telephone and call somebody. If they do a podcast about anything, they probably shouldn't deal with these people. Well, that's the update. Again, as we are recording today. And here's one more thing that I'll say while I'm fired up. The same thing I said a couple days ago on the last show we did. It seems awful funny that we are talking to an audience of this size. Brian, you look at the charts. I don't even have time. I got a sick puppy. Are we still the number one wrestling podcast most times, most weeks? Oh, no, we're, we are always the number one and usually the number two wrestling podcast every single week for years now. We have been the most listened to show. We have higher numbers than anyone else in existence, oh, okay. let alone put, put, currently. Put, put, I mean, it's, it's not even close. There are other networks of shows that like to pretend they're big. The two shows right. we do will do better numbers every week than all of their shows on their network combined. I mean, it's not even put, close. Put your tongue back in your mouth now. Just ask a simple question. I'm saying we got a platform here. And as well, and that doesn't count YouTube. That's and the biggest anyone's ever had in wrestling. No other podcast has any real presence. None of them have ever really figured out how to do it right. They just try to copy our model. Okay, and- once again, didn't need. I, I asked you what time it was. I didn't tell you how to, There's a lot of failure. How to build the watch. There's a lot of real failures out there in wrestling What media. I'm saying is between 10, 12, 13, 14 million listens per month on youtube and all these hundreds of thousands of people per podcast that translates into millions of people per week and per month and we're saying this stuff about rob ellen and colin thompson and what's what's the lawyer's name um neil sacker sacker i knew it had something to do with a sack <laughs> or a bag or a coin purse or something oh you got to google him later on ladies and gentlemen see that well, face He's liable to be Googled here soon. But the point is, we're saying this stuff about these people that are fixing to do a deal that they're claiming is worth tens of millions of dollars, and they got a deal with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And we're saying this, mentioning their names to millions of people. It seems to me if something we were saying was demonstrably untrue, was provably false, or was in some way injurious or damaging to their character or their reputation because we didn't have documentation, whether emails or other printed form to back it up, seems like they'd try to do something about this, doesn't it? Well, they all but threatened to in a number of ways beforehand. They, I've been threatened by old women with chairs worse than these threats. They, they threatened me in an email. Well, don't be saying that shit. We don't take Fuck you. That's not a threat to me. A goddamn sharp blade within a foot of my throat saying, I'm going to cut your fucking heart out, motherfucker. I'll take that one seriously. You email me a threat, you can ball that son of a bitch up and shove it up your ass. Or shove it up Colin's ass, Rob, whatever you're into. Whichever one wants to put the other thing up the other person's ass is no concern of mine. 
as long as all uh, their bullshit ends up shoved back up their own asses. So that's the point. Shut me up by telling me that I'm telling lies, motherfuckers. Because elsewise, we're going to be in the Wall Street Journal over this thing before it's over with, with your fucking securities and exchange. You wish you were in the Southeastern Conference by the time Brian Lass gets finished with you, I'll tell you that. Well, with that, all we could say is the investigation continues. We're looking into all the details about the relationship between Colin Thompson and Cast Media and Rob Ellen and Live One, now Podcast One. We're looking into Colin Thompson's personal and business relationships. Where did this money go? How far back did the scam start? Someone sent me the other day. Do I even have it up here anymore? Yeah, I do. One of the listeners found this on Colin Thompson's Twitter. Do you know how to tell? I'm asking people what their secrets and tells are for good lying. And apparently it was a show he did, How to Lie with Colin Thompson. What the fuck? Oh my God. So we're going to find out a whole lot more. We're hearing a lot of things about his relationship with his church. And boy, we've gone, we've started a deep dive on his family, specifically that father of his and that wife of his. There's going to be a whole lot more to come for this. You can't just steal people's money and think you're just going to bounce away to the next fucking thing. You know, his life is a perverted situation comedy. That wife and that father and boy, that wacky cousin, we're, we're talking to everybody. When you're living a lie in a variety of ways, it's going to come back and get you. And I don't care if you have Rob Ellen protecting you and trying to help you. We're never going to let this go. Everyone's going to know about you. Everyone's going to know what you did. And we will get our money back one way or another. In entertainment value, if nothing else. That's and- right. And besides that, we might be influencing some influencers over there. Colin? Well, we'll see what happens. More to come on all of this. Again, if you have a problem with it, this segment, if you're hearing it, has been legally cleared. But if you have a problem, call Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. Do you hear that, Neil? Call Stephen P. New. Don't email me. Go right to my lawyer. Well, now, wait a minute. Hold on now. Hold on now. Do you think this is even? Do you think this is a fair fight? Because we've got an attorney over here named, what's his name, Sack Job? Uh, Sacker. Sacker. Old Sacker is over here. He's most noted, apparently, for being the personal attorney, possibly the... I don't know about personal attorney. Or business attorney. Yeah. He's an attorney. For Harvey Wienerstein, and then you got on the other corner... Weinstein, but yes. In the other corner, you got Stephen P. New, who just laid, just dropped a $330 million lawsuit on the governor of the state of West Virginia. I don't know if that's fair. I think Sacker better wait until a few more fucking lawyers shows up on his side to make this thing even. Yeah, see, that's the thing. We have a real attorney. This Sacker guy's an entertainment attorney. Our attorney goes after the Sacklers. Our attorney goes after the governor of West Virginia. The Sacklers, not the Sackers. That's right. But what more about this? By the the way, did I ever tell you that when Dixie Carter had her attorney write me a very sternly worded letter about comments that I'd made about old Vince Russo one time, I I looked him up and found out it was an entertainment attorney. Oh. An entertainment attorney was writing, telling me that they would be notifying the federal government if anything happened to fucking shit stain. I'm like, yeah, damn, so you can make a movie about it? That's your area of expertise. You know, 
It's not I believe I could defend myself in a criminal trial against an entertainment attorney. It's not to say there aren't good entertainment attorneys out there. There are a few. But so much of it's just about leveraging your relationships. I saw Grubman and Dursky fucking rise because they represented the label. They represented the artists. They represented the executives. They were tied into every single way. They were able to make stuff happen. Not necessarily known for what they did in court. These guys, you know, are, these guys can read a contract, entertainment attorneys. Maybe they can negotiate. Maybe if they have some connections, they can make stuff happen. But they don't know anything about what happens in a courtroom. I've, you know, I thought Grubman and Dursky were a heck of a couple of guys until they got whipped in that case by Rosencrantz and Gilderstein. That's right. And there'll be more to come in the weeks ahead about Cast Media, Live One, Colin Thompson, Podcast One, and so much more. All factual. All able to be backed up with documentation. But Jim, as we move forward here with the show, I know you wanted to talk about some sad news that just came in, and apparently it reflects something that happened a few weeks back. But a wrestling historian, or actually, I guess, more appropriately, a wrestling reporter for so many years just passed away. Uh, yeah, Koichi Yoshizawa, who was in the glory days of the 60s and 70s and 80s of Japanese wrestling magazines, was like the the name photographer, the name that anybody in the United States knew related to Japanese wrestling. Um, I, I guess he was 73 years old, passed away, as you said, a couple of weeks ago. We just found out about it. And I honestly hadn't had any interaction with him in, God, 40 years now, probably. But before uh, I got into wrestling, when I was a photographer and etc., was writing and shooting pictures for the magazines here, Koichi is the guy that got my stuff in Gong magazine in Japan. Gong Weekly was the, what was it? There were, there were two, Weekly Fight and Gong were the two major wrestling magazines in those years, right? They were monthly, and then they became weekly when things really got hot in 83. Everything, uh, 83 into 84, everything went weekly. But originally, Gong, Gong had a couple of magazines. There was also uh, Weekly Pro, I guess it was just Pro Wrestling before it was Weekly Pro Wrestling. Yeah, but, Baseball that, Magazine Shaw, remember that? Yes, yes, they were done. Weekly Pro was done by the the same publishers, same company did, that did the baseball magazine over there. And, and these were sold on every newsstand and the train stations and any place where sports magazine, any kind of magazines, but major magazines. I mean, these this was uh, whatever their version of Better Homes and Gardens or Newsweek or whatever, these magazines were front and center. They were huge sellers. And they were, the at the time, the most beautiful wrestling magazines in the world. Because, well, here's they how still it are. They still are. Those yeah. old ones are still better than everything today. Um, I, you know, I started shooting, as you know, for Norm Keitzer and, and the Wrestling News, because when I started taking pictures in Louisville, that was the magazine that, Teeny was selling on the the gimmick tables, and they had a relationship with because Norm did all the different uh, regional versions of his magazine, so that it would be more appealing to the fans of particular territories. Remember and, that. Remember that survey in PWI who discovered Jim Cornette, Bill Apter. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, and it, it it was it was Christine Jarrett. Really, if you want to go back that far, because she told me to send some pictures, you know, to Norman Kaiser to get him into wrestling news, right? 
so she could sell more magazines. If I could just jump in, because I recently went through a lot of this stuff, I have all the back and forth paperwork between Norm Keitzer and Christine Jarrett. Oh my God. I, someday you got to copy that stuff for me sometime. Yeah. Yes, I will. And you of course replaced noted photographer, Pat Malone. <laughs> He's just a fantastic photographer. I must say. Pat probably never even had a camera in his hand in his entire life, but he would get pictures from Mike Shields or Scott Teal or whoever, and he would send them to Norman Keitzer because he wanted to say he was the one in Memphis and Nashville selling the magazines. He'd find 12-year-old kids that wanted to get in the matches free, and he'd say, come here, boy, sell me 10 magazines. Go out right now. And they were, what, a dollar or $2 or whatever. And they'd go out and sell the magazines, bring, bring the money back, and he'd give them 10% or whatever, so they'd go get a fucking drink. But anyway, but he would, say, he would send the pictures in, and, and Norman was such a, as Jim Ross once said about Bob Caudill, the epitome of a white man wearing brown shoes, he didn't want to insult anybody, so he credited Pat Malone as the photographer for whatever he said <laughs> Some of my early stuff is is by Pat Malone. Yeah, because I know some of your early stuff, and I also know your handwriting. So some of your early stuff yeah. is definitely attributed to Pat Malone. But anyway, so nevertheless, I started doing that. And then that's when, after I'd been around, you know, doing it for maybe, I guess, about a, was it a year, year and a half? Then I got in contact with wonderful Willa Apta. Uh, cause Lawler was getting a, a more prominent name nationally and they needed stuff and blah, blah, blah. But in between there somewhere, because I've got to go back and look at the magazines and see the cover dates to remember after 45 years. But I think I started appearing, my work started appearing in the Japanese magazines before even in Bill's, the uh, London publishing magazines. And what happened was I got a letter from Koichi Yoshizawa. And now come to find out, I mean, I didn't know at the time his name was everywhere in relation to Japanese wrestling, but he corresponded with everybody that was a smart fan or a photographer or, you know, somewhere in the the American magazine or publicity, you know, wrestling enterprise. And you've seen him because you've got him in the files there, but he would send you result sheets that he he wrote by hand and had copied on a copier and he was uh, apparently i never spoke to him on the phone ever because in the 70s and 80s you didn't just talk to somebody in japan on the fucking phone what are you know mama Cornette would say what am i a millionaire well you want to hear something crazy kids listening today anyone listening today who was born after let's say 2000 they have no idea what long distance is they don't understand that that costs so much more than a phone call down the street oh jesus yeah i don't even know what it was to call fucking japan back then but it would have been like what the equivalent probably of 20 dollars a minute today so anyway but he would he sent a letter and say hey would you like to send you know results uh photos whatever yeah sure and the result sheet that he sent he would write out by hand, like I said, and even though he spoke English and could write English, and that's how he was able to navigate the the two worlds, still when when a Japanese person learns to write English, there's a flourish to it. You know what I'm talking about because you've seen his writing. And he would do it like on a, a piece of copy paper, but it would be folded over like a brochure, and you'd see the 
some results here just in, and almost no space between the paragraphs, just endless results and dates and towns. And then you'd open it, it would be folded over, you'd open it up and there was more in the middle and maybe the back would even be horizontal, whatever, right? And But it, he was giving you the results of all of the matches that happened anywhere for both companies in Japan, Baba and Anoki. And the you know when I started sending pictures, I don't know that he ever clarified that he wanted pictures for the magazine. He said, please send pictures of so-and-so and such-and-such, -and -such, right? A couple of names, and I did. And then a few months later, here, and this, it was either late 1977, early 78, here came an envelope with that issue of Gong magazine in it with my pictures. And I'm a whole, and a check, right? They paid. I, I think I once got a check in like probably 1981 for pictures of Funk and Lawler and some other people. And I was just sending three and a half by five color prints. I might have $3 in it. I got a check for like $200, which today would be between five and 600 bucks. So this was great. It was better than Norm Keitzer and Bill After put together, to be honest. And the, the, the gong magazines, as you said, they were beautiful because they were not full magazine page size, eight and a half by 11 like we have here. They're what, like maybe seven by nine, something like that, seven by 10. But they were thick bound into, they had a, a flat spine. It wasn't really a magazine as much. I mean, some of them were, what, 150, 160 pages? By the time they became weekly in the 80s and into the 90s... They got thinner then. Well, they were still pretty thick, and it, was, it became even more glossy. And that was the thing. The photography was the best photography, and it was glossy. Yeah. No wrestling photographer in the States had had their work presented like that. Oh, well, and because the way that the Japanese people read is... I don't want to say it's backwards. That sounds negative. And a lot of people are going to say, well, Cornette hates Japanese wrestling and Japanese wrestlers. No, the same thing as here. I hate bad Japanese wrestling and bad Japanese wrestlers or anything else bad. Um, the, the Japanese people read in reverse as how uh, Americans read in terms of imagine if you've got a magazine, if you turn it over backwards where the cover is facing down and the spine is on the right, that's their cover, and they turn the pages from, from left to right instead of right to left. And so the front of the once I saw that, that's blowing my mind. And then, like you said, the the cover, the pages were glossy paper, not the newsprint that the American magazines used. And there were huge color sections. I mean, the 30 or 40 pages of color. That was the first part of the book. And then you would go into these. You know, even more pages of black and white, but action pictures, not only of the Japanese matches for either company, but also they constantly sent, you know, uh, photographers to America and covered the different American territories, focusing on not only the wrestlers that came to Japan from America, but just ones they thought might get over, whoever looked colorful or whatever. And Wally Yamaguchi did that for years. And Jimmy Suzuki. Jimmy Suzuki, who, you know, the, he got more juice than most wrestlers in the territories. Linda Rufa. And, 
Well, Linda Rufa was, a, a, even though she obviously, she didn't come from Japan, she lived here in St. Louis, but they sent her traveling around. Bill Otten did a lot of work for him. Uh, but anyway, then after the black and white photo sections and captions and et cetera, then you would have, obviously, I don't know what it was. It was all Japanese, but tons of text and ads and results boxes and everything else you can think of in these magazines. It covered the world of wrestling in the whole country, you know, top to bottom. And it would show you merch that you had never seen before. They would show oh, yeah. you cartoons and drawings that were made like professionally of wrestling characters, like American wrestlers you would see in Japan. Like, oh my God, it's a Terry Funk comic book or all these different things. Oh yeah, the merchandise was vastly eons ahead of what it was in the United States where you might get a cheap t-shirt, but over there you've got everything. And, the, you know, people have talked about that Abdullah the Butcher, Terry Funk had record albums, music records that were actually well, somewhat well thought of, or at least sold well. Uh, they had all that kind of shit. You know what else is really cool? It's a little bit after the time you just started talking about, but like 1983, 84, some of the magazines, and by that point, wrestling was so big that there were other magazines outside of the two major companies, uh, outside of Gong and uh, Weekly Pro, there were other ones. They would have stickers in there, including like spines for your VHS tapes. Like, yeah. <laughs> in 83 or 84, think about that, because VHS, what it was here and what it was there, they had spines of what you're recording off TV, the wrestling you're recording in Japan. Here's something you could put on the tape. That's incredible. Oh, well, and that's honestly why that I was able to see everything was because of their advancements in, you know, home VHS and beta before, you know, it was very common or well thought of over here. But, and that honestly, this was before that in 77, 78, and most of 79, before I got a VHS recorder, the, you know, the pictures you're seeing of these, not only the stars, but the matches and in Japan, American wrestling fans would have been freaking out at the match. Talk about dream matches. You got matches that you could never see in the States because guys were in different territories. And at the same time, if even by just watching or reading the magazines, Brian, I've knocked the guys that they bring over for AEW, Tanahashi and Okada, whoever. Everybody looks the same, does the same shit, works the same, same kind of size, whatever. The major stars at the time, Baba, Inoki, Jumbo, Fujinami, Tiger Mask especially, and uh, Sakaguchi, <laughs> all the supporting cast. Yeah, let's not go crazy. Well, but they they were all, <laughs> I'm not saying they were all great. I they, know, I know, I'm joking. But I'm joking. everyone was unique looking. They had different looks, sizes, personalities, gimmicks. You could, you could easily know exactly what everybody's great move was and everybody, whatever the fuck. It was not, and everybody completely different working style. Even though, even though Inoki trained a lot of that next generation, he was still his what he did in the ring was different and then what they did with that was different and then tiger mask you know and they to bring in not only the greatest americans but also 
the greatest Europeans in Inoki's case, because Baba had the NWA booking deal wrapped up, he could get more Americans. You had the European style, the world of sports style, Tiger Mask mixing with all that shit. But not only that, in the heavyweight category as well, you had fucking Carl Gotch was the god of wrestling. But then, you know, here comes the Americans that are flamboyant and they get over to the funks. You know, it it was a melting pot, but every style was serious in its own way. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, because it was different versions of professional wrestling style combat, as opposed to at some point in the match, everyone's going to just point somewhere and run. Or everyone's going <laughs> to run the opposite way. There's so much more running now. I know it's there a silly no thing. There were no thumbtacks. There were no broken glass. That was it. Like, Maeda and Choshu and Fujinami and Anoki all wore black trunks, but they were all completely different styles in the ring. And Teneru and Taruda even... Well, I didn't go to all Japan, excuse me. Well, no, well, I'm just saying uh, th those two, even though they were both mostly trained by the funks and were influenced by the funks, they were <laughs> had completely different appearances, sizes, styles, personalities. You know, so even, even the guys that were trained by the same source, they, they were more well-rounded because look at the talent that came through. And there was no, um, that's, that's where the, I don't want to say legend, but that's where the belief of even amongst modern day wrestlers and wrestling fans comes from that. It's an honor to go to Japan and wrestle because then it was because they could pick and choose and they paid great money. You had to be a top guy or a top worker or somebody they could do something with. And, you know, you had to ask favors sometimes to get booked in Japan and work your way in. Now, it's the same thing as the United States. They've got every kind of indie outlaw promotion in the world. Anybody can get the American garbage promotions go over there because the promoters fulfill their fucking Mark dreams of running a show in Japan and selling out a phone booth and the guys make no money and do it for the experience. Now, it's not everybody. But it's a lot of people. But the, it was a an honor then. And again, you saw those dream matches with NWA world champions against guys from the AWA. And, you know, fucking in, incredible tag team combinations. And again, to go back to Koichi, any of the magazine coverage, if you picked up the Wrestling News or Wrestling Review or the Rings Wrestling and various other magazines and programs... Any photos you saw of Hulk Hogan coming of age in Japan probably had the signature Koichi at the bottom. Yeah. And so many of those, like you said, the dream matches, every now and then you'd see a photo like, Dusty Rhodes wrestled Bob Backlund? What is this? Those are his photos. Yeah, and he, uh, they, uh, they had a different size, uh, regular standard photo as well back then where ours was three and a half by five. I think theirs were probably what? three by four or something is slightly smaller but he always uh autographed more or less photo koichi either on the back or the corner or whatever his name was everywhere and you know I, I, that, that's one thing that my mom got the biggest kick out of here i'm 16 years old right 
and I'm taking pictures at the wrestling matches in Louisville. But when two things, number one, when I got a check from Gong Magazine for $100 and I'm 16 and it's the mid-70s, and secondly, she would always tell her friends when you'd open up to the part where my pictures were, every word on the page would be Japanese except in English photos by Jim Cornette. And that just tickled her to death. And she'd always say, have you heard from Koichi? Has Koichi sent you a package yet so she could show people? But that was, you know, that was, that was the thing. He was everywhere at that point. And he was the one that really introduced not only the American newsletter writers and readers, but uh, the American wrestling magazine publishers and people to what was going on in Japan back in those days. There, Like you said, there was no, you didn't just Skype people. There was no internet. And before home video, it really in 1980, you couldn't see this shit except through his efforts to get these magazines out and, and get better American coverage for his magazines. And like you said, I have in the files everything he ever sent in. So it's not just the photos. And every photo is labeled in English. You know, every photo, you know exactly what it is. But there's just envelopes filled with photos. It wasn't like he was just sending in one or two photos. He yeah. was sending in every photo he took and telling you basically to choose the best ones. But detailed notes. It's extraordinary. And it just makes you grateful and thankful that someone took it that seriously. Because... You know, it's easy for people not to, and you always need someone that will. And that's, you know, I, I kept with the magazines through really the first part of 1983, because I've mentioned even when I started managing in late 82, I was still taking posed pictures. So I would send a few things in. They liked action. And that's one reason I, I have a lot of great color action stuff of some big matches like Harley Race and Tommy Rich in the Omni in Atlanta. Lawler and Bockwinkel in Memphis for the AWA title because after, and especially Norm Keitzer with his printing, wanted black and white because it reproduced better. But their printing in Japan was so much farther ahead and the they used color. So, And then when Terry Funk came in, shot a lot of that. And, and unfortunately, not the fucking bloodbath in Memphis. I didn't have color film, but... You you knew if, if Terry Funk was around, shoot color, and they paid more for color because that was a bigger section. But that was the thing is that, um, you know, it, this is how you got to know these these different wrestlers. And then when video came in, uh, I've mentioned my friend Walt Wolanski had a, a contact in Japan, and Walt made trips actually to Japan on a number of occasions, went to the wrestling stores. but. He had a guy over there that they already had nice quality VHS and beta machines in homes in 1980. And they started sending over tapes of those shows in return for American wrestling that now they were able to get. So we could get Japanese wrestling. If we'd have had VCRs, we could have gotten it beforehand. But when we finally did get them, we were able to start trading. And I have. Every program that Inoki and Baba aired, every weekly TV show from probably 1980 or 81 through the early 90s, still on tape. And they, would you agree, Brian, that the television production quality of Baba and Inoki's programs from the mid 70s through the early 80s not only blew away 
every television program in this country, but was better than Vince's when he first took over the WWF. Oh, most certainly it was. And important to note, it was also prime time. It wasn't just a wrestling show on, you know, not to say, well, Monday Night Raw technically is prime time, but this was prime time network TV. Network. Who was on which network? You probably know this. Uh, there was Nippon TV and TV Asai. That's right. TV Asai and was New Japan and Nippon was that, All Japan. And that stemmed from the, in the earlier days, they were before Baba and Anoki left the original JWA, the Japanese Wrestling Alliance, and split off their own companies. The wrestling was on one network, and Baba was the big star on one weekly program, and Inoki was the big star on the other weekly program, and for major events, they would be a tag team, and well, goddamn, that was just swell, right? And then wrestling got so popular, when Baba and Inoki split, the other network, whichever one the JWA was not on, I can't remember, was able to snatch up their own wrestling program, and it was prime time network tv they they had newspaper coverage this was a fucking legitimate professional sport in japan second only to to baseball at the time right i mean sumo was pretty big too culturally and again that's why so well, many I, people were able to go like tenru was a sumo player performer fighter i don't know what you call them a sumo warrior? A su what, what do you sound like Shane McMahon? What do we call our wrestlers? A sumo wrestler is what they call them. Sumo wrestler. A sumo entertainer, I guess. <laughs> this is the greatest night in the history of sumo entertainment. But, you know, that's why, I mean, where was a big wrestling show held? Sumo Hall. So, I mean, sumo was still big culturally because it went back so far. Baseball, of course, that was the prime of uh, Satahara O. So, uh, you had wrestling there, too. But but anyway, that was uh, that was the situation in the seventies, eighties, and really through, as we know, the the nineties, and then things like in America with wrestling started to go sideways. Apparently, but Koichi had kept up uh, with a lot of the reporters and friends that, and was still you know involved to some extent until recently. But uh, but anyway, yeah, he made me a lot of money and was a heck of a guy that I never met. I hate to hear, and I, he was only, so when I started corresponding with him, if I was 16, he would have been only 27 years old. It, it seemed like I was thinking I'm dealing with this, you know, older Japanese professional photographer and newspaper uh, magazine fellow, and I didn't know how the whole thing worked, but he was barely uh, more than a kid like me. Very prolific, though. Holy shit, like you said, he was everywhere. That's right, and I'm going to go through my files and see what I can put maybe on Instagram so some of the listeners can check it out from Koichi, and we're hearing about the thoughts from Kornichi, I guess here. Hey! Hey, what? Kornichi. Come on, that'll never fly. Hey, real quick before we move on, I know you have some classic wrestling stuff you want to talk about, and we're going to continue in that vein, but, you know, talking about... Japanese wrestling 45 years ago, 40 years ago, whatever it may be, thinking about wrestling today in the States and wrestling in the past in the States, considering the problems you and me and others have with a variety of things around wrestling, is the problem the wrestlers or is the problem the current crop of promoters? 
Because when you think about the change in the business in Japan, for instance, obviously losing network TV was a big deal. But things kind of kept on going a certain way. When Baba died, everything changed. Yeah. Anoki was alive for a while, but he lost power. But things changed. New Japan became very different than what it originally was and whatever he was trying to turn it into for a while there. When you look at the problems in the States, is it the problem that anyone in a t-shirt could be a promoter? Not to say that wardrobe matters, but that anyone could be a promoter versus someone who I'm looking at this as something I want to make a profit with. I want you guys to work for me, but you're working for me. You can't do what you want. Who's at fault, the wrestlers or the promoters? Um, I think there's enough blame to go around. You know, it it started with, with the dying off of the territories because of the conglomeration of Vince and WCW in the United States it gave an opportunity for every knucklehead who thought he could run a show and do it better, some with great intentions and with great results, and some with great intentions and horrible results and all manner of in-between. Uh, they thought they could do it, and there was a place to do it. There was an opening. Because as what we're going to talk about in a few minutes, there was no live wrestling being suddenly uh, presented to people who were used to goddamn live wrestling all the time. And so uh, promoters, yes, and you can't blame some of the wrestlers who have never been taught properly about, I'm not talking about how to do a monkey flip, I'm talking about taught properly about what the business is, what it's supposed to be, how it works, how to think about it. But in that same point, that only goes so far where you just, you can't have any sympathy for a fucking moron when you, you can't say, well, I didn't, he was never taught not to roll around in broken glass. You know, it only goes so far. So I think, yes, a lot of it was the promoters. And we mentioned even at a higher level, Paul E. Because of ECW, we're still stuck with furniture 25 years later. Because events 40 years later, we're still stuck with uh, bodybuilders getting more chances than talented in-ring performers. So it, it, good or bad or indifferent, a lot is attributed to the promoters in wrestling because they're the ones in control. But at the same time, to me, no, you can't blame every wrestler for not knowing the entire history and not being a psychological genius because they couldn't ride in a car with fucking Terry Funk for five years straight. But at some point, you have to assume that some nitwit, you know, just got in the business because he could do fucking trampoline tricks and doesn't give a shit about being a star, drawing money, or whether anybody's laughing at him or the business or not. So there's, there's a sweet spot in there where everybody gets a little bit of a blame. All right. Well, before any more blame goes around here, Jim, <laughs> you know, we've talked about a lot here, some things that are distressing, some things that are bothersome. Of course, the sad passing of Koichi the sad existence of Colin Thompson, a variety of things. Some people out there in the cult of Cornette have problems dealing with maybe a stressful day, maybe an injury from some athletic event. Maybe they need help sleeping, and we have the perfect people to tell them about. Well, it's, you know, stress, it's, it's a heaviness. It weighs on you. It's like every morning, as soon as you wake up, you open your eyes, you look up, you go, hi, heaviness. I see you're going to be fucking with me early today. 
Because a lot of people are, it's, it's tough being a person. And a lot of people are stressed these days. They got things going on. You need to control the stress. You need, to, you, you need more calm. You need more focus and concentration instead of running around willy-nilly like a chicken with his head cut off, like some kind of crazy person with their head on fire. And you need a good night's sleep to recharge your batteries. All these things are common benefits of CBD. And that's not a TV network, folks. That's a very important plant-based solution to all your problems. And where better to go for CBD than CB Distillery, which they have CBD in their name. So you know they know something about it. It's not just some random gas station where you're going to pick up some trucker pills. These people, they're professionals. They know what they're doing. A full range of carefully formulated CBD and other plant-based solutions can be found at cbdistillery.com. And as a matter of fact, all these things are packed with whole body healing plant compounds and vital nutrients. Now these things grow naturally in the ground. And then they perk their little buds up through the dirt, seeking water from the rain and sun from the sun. That's generally where you get your sun. And then they blossom into things that can help us in our daily life because they're natural coming from the soil that has been tilled and farmed. If you need better sleep, 90% of customers report better sleep with CBD. Could you be more calm? 81% say CBD helps with stress and anxiety. If you're suffering pain after exercise, or like me, you just skipped the exercise and went straight to the pain, 80% report less pain after physical activity. And as far as the focus and concentration, 2% of the people polled say that they could stare at their fireplace for 10 minutes and start a fire. That is not true, and that is not part of the copy here, and that is not part of any poll that was conducted by the fine people at CB Distillery. And hey, did we tell everyone about their fine products? You, you didn't get the updated copy where they got that? That's a late-breaking news item. Where did the you guys, get the updated copy? Well, I got it from from uh, from Hazel. That's who I got it from. And I'll tell you something else. He was he was so alert because he had a good night's sleep that after he stared at his fireplace for ten minutes and a fire started, when the rest of his house caught on fire, he remembered nine one one's number off the top of his head. This none of this has happened from Hazel giving you any of this to the nine one one call. Well, again, let's go back to a good night's sleep for those who need it. And 100% clean ingredients. No artificial colors or flavors or preservatives. How would you preserve CBD anyway? Well, how do you preserve anything? Well, I generally pickle it in some fucking formaldehyde, but I don't think that's natural, so I'm not sure how they're preserving this stuff. But it's recommended by Dr. Kevin Fry, a Mayo Clinic-trained internist. He used to work with Dr. Ken Ramey, and also he's a preventive <laughs> health specialist. That means he prevents more health for people. No, that's not what that means. Than the, the average layman. No, no, he's, no, no. He's a specialist. He has gone to school to learn how to prevent health. No, it's, and he says, take this. No, what it means is he has gone to school to learn how to, to guide you so that you can prevent bad health. 
I explained mine easier. It sounded like I was it telling did, the but truth it wasn't and true. you were lying. You, you, explained you were the it one easier, stuttering. But you were the one lying. Well, no, I wasn't. I was, if he's a specialist in preventive health, then he must know better than anybody how to prevent health. How to prevent so bad things from slipping don't in. Don't get on his bad side or he, he's got all the tricks on you. You're going to be gone. There are no tricks. You won't be gone. No one will be well, gone. There, there are 2 million satisfied customers of CB Distillery. They're here. I'll tell you that. They're here. They're not gone. They're going to be here for a while because they're taking stuff from CB Distillery. Dr. Kevin Fry. That's right. If you're frustrated with a health concern that's not getting better, try CBD. Now, that, I don't think that extends to blood loss. If you're experiencing right now blood loss that's not getting better, I would advise not trying CBD as my first option. But if you're just sore and achy, not resting well, not focusing, not concentrating, just having a brain full of effluvia, well, I think you you need to you need to talk to these people. Or don't even talk to them. Don't bother them. They're busy. They're trying to help people all over the world. Just go to their website. Yeah. Yeah, cbdistillery.com and enter my code. What is my code, you would ask? Well, I'll tell you. Son of a bitch. As soon as I go to the other copy, <laughs> I'll, that's when I'll remind myself of what <laughs> my code is. Is it on here? No, this is the one that's the same, apparently. So I'll vamp a little bit more until I go back down here. Does the code... <laughs> Does the code JCE sound like it works for you, Brian, on this one? I think on this one, uh, it is the code JCE and you get 20% off. What a code it is. Yes. Go to cbdistillery.com, enter my code JCE for a 20% discount. Now, that's not 20% off satisfaction. That's not 20% off results. That's not 20% off the way it's going to make you feel, baby. That's 20% off how much it's going to cost you. That's 20% off of what's coming directly out of your ass. Both of your gluteus maximi. So if I were you, I would take advantage of this opportunity while it is available and go to cbdistillery.com promo code JCE for 20% off. I got a cramp in my side. I think I need some CBD. Well, let's wait until after the show, but that sounds like a great suggestion. Once again, CB Distillery, don't forget, cbdistillery.com, promo code JCE for 20% off. Who can forget that promo code? Well, Jim, as we are continuing on here with the show, who can forget classic wrestling? <laughs> who still remembers Pampero Furpo? <laughs> and I understand you recently received some classic wrestling that you've been really excited to talk about with the listeners. <laughs> It sounds delightful. Is that a pig? <laughs> it's a truffle pig. What I'm trying to say here, I think, is that you you have an email that you're very excited about. No, I don't. You're you see, you're wrong already. You've already you've you've screwed the pooch here. You've shipped the bed on this already. It's not an email. I got a package in the United States uh. Postal Service the way that Benjamin Franklin intended it to be. Well, you picked up the pooch. I only held its head. Well, there you see. I'm the one that's got to do all the work around here. But uh, our old friend Joni Aries from up in the Pacific Northwest, every once in a while, she said, besides cakes, 
she sends me a package of uh, old wrestling pictures or programs or things pertinent to the Northwest out there where she's been a fan for years and years and years and been a photographer and done a bunch of stuff. And in this package uh, was just a, a program from Portland Wrestling. Everybody knows if you're listening to this program, you probably know that Don Owens was the promoter of Portland Wrestling, and that was uh, pretty much along with the Houston television program, the longest-running wrestling program on the air in the United States, at least, from, what, 19... They got, uh, they got up to 40 years, or was it 41? I'm not exactly sure. Maybe 39. I can't remember. Houston was on but Channel 39. Well, yeah, and they did a 39 on 39 uh, celebration one year. That's how I know they got to at least 39. But anyway, this is Portland, and it's a, it, the program contains a calendar of the events that the Portland Wrestling Promotion ran for June 1987. Now, this is a few years past the glory days with Piper and Buddy Rose and the Sheep Herders and all that stuff, and and... Business had started to go down for most of the territories, but Portland really didn't constrict that much because Portland was always a small territory. And she even included a map. I don't even know if you know this, Brian, but the the Portland wrestling territory, as it existed at least in the 80s, not only is Oregon one of the smaller states in in the United States, except for a few like Delaware in the Northeast, but Portland as a city, sits on the uppermost northern part of the state of Oregon, and they also ran towns like Medford and Klamath Falls, Oregon, in the very southernmost part, that's only 280 miles. So north to south, the state of Oregon is only 300 miles long. And it was considered a relatively easy travel territory, but also a party territory. Well, yes, and that, that was part of it. It was explained to me, and I met a young lady in 1985 in Dallas that had come down to visit from Portland. And boy, howdy, that made me want to go to Portland. The only time I ever wanted to work in Portland. But it was a short trip territory, and it rained all the time, so indoor activities were more uh, suitable. But also because the southeastern part of the state has almost no towns in it, they really didn't run most of that part of the state. And Portland over to Pendleton, Oregon, or up to Klamath, or uh, not Klamath Falls, but uh, Yakima, Washington, is only like 200 miles. So we're talking about a schedule for a month in a territory that was basically 300 miles north to south and 200 miles east to west at its widest point. And these are the live wrestling events that you could see just in that small geographic area. And then figure, well, there was another territory in almost every part of the United States running just as many shows. And that's the thing I wanted to illustrate. Because now the business has completely inverted to where television in the territory days was the vehicle that got you familiar with the talent that was in the area. You knew who was mad at who and why and who was challenging for what title. And it introduced you to the new wrestlers that came in the territory. And it kept you up on the big stars that were already there. 
that was what your one hour or 90 minutes or in a few places, two hours of television a week would tell you. But to see the good stuff, you had to go live. You had to go to the arena to see the big matches, the major matches, the non-televised stuff. And the only time they would televise that is if they were shooting an angle or having a match with a finish that they should show on television because it would lead you to want to buy a ticket to see the live rematch the next week or the next month that was not going to be on TV. And that's the way it worked. And the guys made their money on the tickets that were sold at the gate for the shows to the point where, I don't know if this point has been made, Brian, enough lately for the younger fans, you didn't get paid for television in the territory days. Very few people did. Have we, have we even brought that up lately? Not in a long time, no. If you were a pushed main event full-time roster talent or even an underneath full-time roster talent in the territories, television was looked at by the promoters as your advertising. And they paid the job guys 25 bucks, 50 bucks, 60 bucks someplace. But the, the top guys, even Flair... Flair didn't get paid to go to the TBS studio on Techwood Drive every Saturday morning and cut those promos, or even when he wrestled. That was just what you did. Crockett would pay guys on his syndicated TV tapings if they were in the dark matches that were advertised because they drew the money, and so would Vince, so would a few of the other bigger promoters. But in Memphis TV, nobody got paid except the job guys. And the announcers got paid. But that was the thing. Television was of, of that importance to as your sales vehicle, but the product was the house shows. And now it's completely reversed to where the house shows are really just, oh boy, we haven't been to New York this year. We haven't been over to Chicago or whatever. Let's drop in. But the house shows are just kind of touring. The guys don't work as hard. TV's the big thing, the major rights fees. It's completely reversed itself. But because of that, as we mentioned so many times, there's no place for guys to get experience. The place to get experience is not on national television or on worldwide pay-per-view. And the territories gave guys, even the big towns in a territory, you didn't want to shit the bed in front of 15,000 people at a major show in, in the Omni, but it's a whole lot better than shit in the bed in front of a million on television. But there were also small spot shows. that That's where you went and learned. You got more time. They gave the matches more time because there were fewer of them. You had to fill up two hours. And you could fuck with individual fans in the crowd and see what worked and what didn't. And so this schedule that we're going to finally get to here in one second illustrates if you were if you were a guy on top in a small territory even though as i said this was past the glory days you could work enough and make enough money to where you could live and be home every night and keep in shape for an opportunity that might come with Vince or Vern or whoever the fuck right for more money crockett and if you were a rookie or a guy that you know, just hadn't made it yet, you could go and you could try out a new gimmick or you could just get experience or work with different people 
until hopefully a light bulb came on or you got a spot, right? That was the purpose. That was the, the benefit to the wrestlers of the territory system and to the promoters, obviously. It was because they, they didn't just run one or two towns a week and expect to do big crowds at each one. They ran their towns regularly and developed markets where they could sell 150,000, 200, 250,000 tickets every year in that town at affordable prices, and their business would maintain itself on an ongoing basis. Nobody was going to goddamn be a billionaire, but everybody was going to make good, decent money. So having said that, Brian... Are you ready to hear if you were a wrestler in Portland Wrestling in June of 1987 where you would have been booked? Yeah. June 1st, Cottage Grove, Oregon at the high school. That was a Monday night. It's a spot show. Tuesday night, Roseburg, Oregon at the fairgrounds. And all these bell times, by the way, are 8 p.m. Roseburg, Oregon looks to be somewhere around... 200 miles from Portland, tops. Wednesday night was Medford, Oregon. And again, Medford is a town that's almost all the way south, probably about 280 miles, right next to Klamath Falls. Salem, Oregon on Thursday the 4th. Salem is, it looks like it's 50 miles on this map I'm looking at from Portland. So, these guys are going down and they're driving back home every night. There's no hotels. Nobody's having to rent a car. Friday nights, and there were four Fridays. Actually, I should mention Thursday night was Salem, Oregon every week. There were four Thursdays in June, and they ran Salem each night. So that was four. So if they're drawing, what, June 87, I don't know what their business was like, but if they're doing 500 people, Every Thursday night at the Armory, they're still selling 2,000 tickets a month or 25,000 tickets a year in Salem, Oregon on Thursday nights. And then Friday night, weekly, there were four Fridays in June, was Eugene, Oregon, which looks to me to be about 125, 130 miles from Portland. And then, of course, Saturday night was the Portland Sports Arena. That was everybody's money, money night, the biggest town. Owens had his own building, the Portland Sports Arena, that he had converted from this massive bowling alley. And that's where they did their TV, and that's where you saw them doing uh, all those angles in the crow's nest from all those classic Portland tapes. That was every Saturday night, the 6th, the 13th, 20th, and 27th. And But then Sunday, the 7th, Mabton, Washington, which is... Almost not on the map, but it's in between Yakima and Prosser. They were at the high school, spot show. And then another town named M-Freewater in Oregon at the Posse Grounds. Not the Pussy Grounds, but the Posse Grounds. No one thought about the Pussy Grounds. Why'd you have to bring that up? Okay, well, you mentioned the people, you know, the reasons to go to Portland Wrestling. Um, <laughs> I mentioned that? You did. June 9th was was Albany, Oregon at the Boys and Girls Club. June 10th was Hood River, Oregon at the Armory. We're back in Salem on Thursday, Eugene on Friday, Portland on Saturday. 
On Sunday, the 14th of June, they're in Warm Springs, Oregon at the Convention Center. On the 15th, they're in Prineville, Oregon at the fairgrounds. On the 16th, they're in K. Klamath Falls, Oregon, which is a long trip, at the OIT Gym. They're back in Medford on Wednesday the 17th, which apparently runs every two weeks on a Wednesday night. Salem Thursday, Eugene Friday, Portland Saturday. Sunday the 21st, they're in Pendleton, Oregon. Monday the 22nd, Yakima, Washington, which again was only 185 miles from Portland. 23rd and 24th, Tuesday and Wednesday, because I guess they had a printing deadline, were to be announced, time 8 p.m. They were still filling the calendar in, but they were going to run every goddamn night. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they're back in Salem, Eugene, Portland. Then Sunday, the 28th, Seaside, Oregon at the Convention Center. The 29th, McMinnville, Oregon at the Armory. I swear to God, McMinnville can't be 25 miles from Portland. And then on the 30th, they were in Lapine, Oregon at the high school. 30 days in the month, 30 live events in the probably at that time smallest geographic territory in the United States. But everybody was getting some practice. And that was magnified 20 times over, except when you when you went to the W in 1987, how many shows a night was the WWF running? Three? Three or four. Um because they, they even was, had a D show. I mean, they had four shows running a night at different points. Yeah. Crockett was running two shows a night most nights, and he had I think the UWF might have still been in business, practicing at that point, right before he bought them. There was still a Florida circuit, even though Crockett had assumed it. World class was still around. Memphis was running six or seven days a week. When the AWA, Vern was still running a, a, approximately the same schedule that he always did by 87. He was just starting to cut back. But this is late in the territory days, and we're still talking about in the United States alone, probably 20 to 25 live events running every single night. And that was when the territories were hampered. You know what I'd be curious about? Because I don't know, you know, I always find this area fascinating, but I can't pretend to be an expert in Portland wrestling. There are many great ones out there, like Mike Rogers. But the next year... Frank Culbertson. Frank Culbertson, of course. Uh, Kirby Strong, I think, is his name, right? Is that his name, the guy out there? Kirby something. He had to change it. Something about the way he was registered for his parole. But I'd like to know about the next year when Billy Jack Haynes ran opposition. He came off the road from WWE and ran against Don Owens. I wonder how many days a week they were running. Were they still running 30 days a month at that point? Uh, I think everybody was slowing down at that point because... um, I think it was well it may have been it may have been around that time or it may have been the early 90s Memphis stopped even running Evansville. Um I think they had a TV issue or whatever but it's it started slowing down in 88 and onwards. But I thought well that was an interesting look at the schedule of a small territory just in terms of what the live events were that they ran for the month but then I thought well 
Two things. Number one, I wanted to go back and look at what an average month in the Tennessee Territory looked like when I was there because I have a lot of information. And secondly, because we were just talking about Adrian Street because he just passed away here a week or two ago, and I mentioned some of the matches we had, I thought, well, I'll look at a month that I was managing Adrian, right? And this was, so it's not June 1987 in, in Portland. It's January 1983 in the Tennessee Territory. But I think because I've got, you know, detailed records, I think it can give you a better look at how the guys traveled and worked and what the situation was in another average territory. At the time, in 1983, Tennessee was doing well. It wasn't a record year, except Memphis was really good that summer, but it was doing well, and it was a little bit bigger than the small territories like Kansas City, Portland, uh, Continental, but it wasn't as big as the Carolinas or the AWA, etc. So it's kind of another look at what was going on. Would you care to jump into this for a moment? I would love to hear this, yes. I'm curious, uh, at some point you should also do the same month for you and Crockett in 87, just to compare two different things happening the same month in the wrestling business as everything was changing, but I'd love to hear this about your time with Adrian. What month did you say and, it was? Uh, January 1983, and we can do that other thing. To, if it'll keep us from talking about the current wrestling, I'm all for doing whatever. Well, there'll be current wrestling talk and questions later, but let's go into this. Yeah. This is great stuff. Okay, but anyway, this, as as people might recall, I started really with a full-time schedule as a manager uh, end of October, first part of November 1982. I had been doing the TV appearances, and then they worked me into the, you know, house shows as, as it evolved. So really, I've only been full-time as a manager for a couple of months, and I've only had like two or three gimmick matches where me and... Jimmy Hart were on opposite sides while the guys we managed wrestled each other and we got in and rolled around a little bit. So I'm not very experienced, but I say this because this is illustrates one of the points I made earlier. For somebody just getting in the business, brand new, not only if you worked a territory, you had a chance to get out in front of people, but you had a chance to be in the locker room every night with all the people that knew more than you did. So they could tell you when you were fucking up or they could explain to you beforehand what you were supposed to be doing to begin with or how to do that so that you wouldn't go out and, you know, lay an egg. And in January uh, of 1983, let's start off with January 1st, New Year's Day. We were in Nashville, Tennessee, because most of the guys lived in Nashville. So it was easy to go down to the sports arena short trip, and you're home to watch the news. Now, I was not living in Nashville yet, so I'll tell you, I'd spent the following week, the last week of December, Memphis was on a Monday, that's where we did almost a $40,000 house, Lawler and Bockwinkle, for the AWA title was the main event, and it was a sellout, right? Then I went to Louisville on Tuesday, Evansville on Wednesday, and then on Thursday, we were off for the 30th and 31st of December. So, no, I'm sorry, 30th, we had to do a Memphis TV taping because we couldn't do it New Year's Day morning. So we did a TV on the 30th, and then I was off New Year's Eve. I stayed with my cousin in Memphis because I didn't have to pay. So then we start January. I've had one day off, right, in the previous fucking week since Christmas. 
Now we start January 1 in Nashville. And that was, as I said, the New Year's Day show. The house was $10,700. And I made 100 bucks for managing Adrian Street and Apocalypse over Bill Dund or, uh, against Bill Dundee and Terry Taylor as part of our ongoing TV angle. And by the way, when I mentioned dollar figures, a dollar then is $3 now. $100 then is $300 now. It makes sense because I know for a fact a Wendy's triple combo was a little over $4 then. So multiplying everything by three. So then we come back to Memphis that night, 200 miles. And the next day we're in Memphis in the Coliseum for an afternoon show on Sunday, January 2nd. The previous week, Lawler has disputedly won the AWA title from Bockwinkle. The people went home thinking he was the new champion. They're going to hold it up and have a rematch the following week, but because they couldn't do it on this one, neither Lawler nor Bockwinkle was on the show. So it went from a record house in Memphis at the time of $39,400 down to $11,500 for the main event of me, Adrian, and Linda against Bill Dundee and referee Jerry Calhoun. That was the first record I set in wrestling, the biggest drop in the history of Memphis wrestling. We dropped $28,000. I blame Calhoun. I blame Calhoun. Anyway, the next day, Monday, January 3rd, we were at a spot show in Boonville, Mississippi, where again I managed uh, Apocalypse against Terry Taylor and Adrian Street against Bill Dundee. And Boonville was 90 miles from Memphis. But then I had to go back home to Louisville. That was 400 miles overnight. The next day, Louisville, January 4th, I managed Adrian and Apocalypse against Dundee and Taylor. Got 100 bucks. A lot of these payoffs are going to be basically, I'm not going to go over every single one of them, but I was making at the time as the junior, junior member of the, the squad, the greenest, most unimportant person this week, the first week of January, I made $625. I was making between $75 and $100 a night. Now, as we just mentioned, the inflation calculator, $625 times three is $1,875 for this green fucking manager to work every night with a bunch of people that have been in the business for a long fucking time how is that? that it, again, a lot of people say, well, fuck, the territories you had to work every night. Yeah, so you could get good at it. And that's the problem. I was getting paid almost to the equivalent of $2,000 a week to be the lowest paid guy in the company and fucking learn. Anyway, Wednesday, January 5th in Evansville, Indiana. That's 140 miles over from Louisville. Same tag team match, made 60 bucks because it was Evansville. And then the next night, we were in Madisonville, Kentucky, which Teeny ran once a month, and it was at the little ju junior high school gym. But it was only, my God, 45 or 50 miles from Evansville, as I recall, maybe 60. But there was another live event, and the house was $1,200. I got paid $65. Now, the house being $1,200, let's bring this up now. On all these shows I'm going to talk about, 
the average ticket price was somewhere between $3 and 50 and $4. So if you just figure if it's a $4,000 house, there were about a thousand people or a little over there. If it was a $2,000 house, you were probably better than 500. But the tickets were priced for the people at the time so they could go every week or so the people in Madisonville could afford, you know, kids $3, general admission $4, ringside $5 or whatever. So then after Madisonville on Thursday night, it's a mere 220 miles back to Memphis to stay at my cousin's house because the next day on Friday, January 7th, we're in Tupelo, Mississippi, which is 110 miles from Memphis, and it's goddamn hell. And that was the worst town in the territory, and it was always a $50 payoff. We've told Tupelo stories before. But just so you know the relative expenses of things, to drive from after Madisonville to go to Memphis and then on to Tupelo, I spent $10 on food, $12 on gas, and $20 on a motel room. 1983, what a year. When you went to Louisville, obviously you stayed at home. Did any of the wrestlers, did you ever invite anyone to stay at the house? Um, every once in a while. The, actually, after I got in the business, no, because most of the time, uh, you know, the guy, until I started living in Nashville and then I wasn't staying so much in Louisville, the guys were going in different directions because you could make all these towns out of Nashville and your longest trip was a little over 200 miles. You could be home every night. When I first started living in Louisville, that was the northernmost part of the territory. Memphis was a little over 400 miles away, so I was staying at one end or the other until I got a place in Nashville. To answer your question. Thank you. But, but speaking of Memphis, Saturday, January 8th, we come back from Tupelo to Memphis, 100 miles, and the next morning we're at Channel 5 at 10 o'clock to go on the air live at 11 for the 90-minute program. Once the wrestling show is finished, then we hop in the car and we go 200 miles up the road to Nashville to the sports arena where this was the three-on-one handicap. It was Dundee beating me, Adrian Street, and Miss Linda up all three at the same time. Plus, I was still managing Apocalypse and Jesse Barr. So Jesse would have a single match or Apocalypse would have a single match. Then I'd go back out and either manage Adrian or team with Adrian. So I'm working between one and three times on each of these shows. And in Nashville that night, the I stayed in Nashville because we were in Jackson the following day, so I spent $20 on a motel, $14 on gas, and $10 on food. The house was $9,700, and I got paid $150, which would be the equivalent of $450 today on a $30,000 house. And Nashville, by the way, everybody's familiar with the sports arena now because of TNA making it the asylum and other promotions over the last 20 years doing shows there. But in the pre-TV days, they built that building specifically for wrestling when Nick was still in charge of Nashville. And by the time they opened it up, Nick was about out of business. Jarrett took it over. But the old building in Nashville at the fairgrounds that Nick ran in the glory years, probably, as best we can tell, seated between three and 4,000 people. 
Yeah, but it was a big exhibition hall building. The Nashville Sports Arena that we come to know now, originally with no TV set, no entranceway, just the two locker rooms with a goddamn toilet set. They look like jail cells, concrete block jail cells, a toilet, a sink, and a fucking boiler. Otherwise, the whole building was dedicated to seats for wrestling, and you could put between 2,000 and 2,500 people in there, depending on standing room and who wanted to cooperate and how many fat people you had. And that's not a joke. It was bleachers, not even individual seats, but bleachers. So Nashville, on most Saturday nights when business was hot, would draw around 2,000 or a little bit more at an average price of $4 a head. And I believe I mentioned during the time that I was managing Adrian, that's when they raised the prices a dollar across the board. So instead of instead of four and five, I think it became five and six or whatever. I don't even think there was a kid's ticket then. So they were selling in the good periods, 8,000 tickets a fucking month in Nashville, which translates to almost a hundred thousand tickets a year in a goddamn concrete block building in the, on the fairgrounds, which the rent I don't think was $500 on that building. So anyway, after Nashville on January 8th, we go to Jackson, Tennessee on the 9th, and that house was $14,000, and I managed twice that night and got paid 100 bucks. Again, the equivalent of a $42,000 house and a $300 payoff. But then we come back to Memphis, January 10th, Monday night. Remember I said, Brian, this the Sunday, January 2nd, was the lowest house, $11,500, I think, in the modern history of Memphis. Right. Well, Lawler, Lawler and Bockwinkle were back on the card January 10th. And their rematch, plus me, Adrian, and Linda against Bill Dundee and Jerry Calhoun in our rematch, had a lot to do with it, did $32,000. And I got paid $150, or the equivalent of $96,000 and $450 to be on the card. Lawler and Bockwinkle drew it, right? And then I drove all the way back to Louisville 400 miles that night, and in 400 miles I spent $23 on gas. And in Louisville the next night, same thing, uh, handicap tag team match plus i managed a tag team match jesse bar and apocalypse against bobby fulton and dutch mantel and the house was down in louisville it was only fourteen thousand dollars then same handicap tag team match on wednesday night the 12th in evansville which was a 280 mile round trip from louisville and back over to louisville because the 13th we were in Lexington, Kentucky. That was the monthly show at Rupp Arena. I managed a tag team match and a single match. The house was $24,000. I got $150, or again, a $72,000 equivalent and a $450 equivalent. Then we go back on Friday, January 14th to Tupelo, Mississippi, which was... 425 miles from Louisville, where I started from, and the house was $3,000, and we made 60 bucks, or I made 60 bucks. Then 100 miles over to Memphis for TV the next morning, and then back to Nashville that Saturday night, the 15th, and that's where 
our return three against one handicap match with Bill Dundee set a record, my first positive record in the wrestling business, $10,758. Because they had just raised the prices and we got almost all the people in the building that it would hold because at an average ticket price of $5, we're still over 2,000 people. And then guess what we did on Sunday, January 16th, Brian? Uh, Sunday, I'm not sure. Uh, Tupelo? No, we got a day off. Oh, wow, really? The first day off in the month of January that I had from working two and three night times a night came on January 16th. It was Sunday. Most of the time, the only thing that ran on Sunday in the Tennessee Territory was Jackson once a month or Memphis or Louisville if they couldn't get their regular nights. But then the 17th, we were back in Memphis. House was 16 grand at Memphis prices, which they still had, I believe at that point, a $3 general admission. That's somewhere around 5,000 people was not a, a very good turnout, but I got paid 125 bucks. Hey, if I can ask ask you a question, how many of these shows is Jerry Lawler booked on in this period of time? And how many of the shows, if any, does Jerry Jarrett attend? Uh, Jerry Jarrett was in Memphis most of the time. And Jerry Jarrett was always at TV if he was booking and sometimes at TV if he wasn't. What about Nashville? Um, the fuck? He's going to come. Teeny was selling tickets, but no. Jerry didn't want to come down to that. Nothing happened in Nashville. Nashville kind of took care of itself. It wasn't a big house. It was going to be what it was going to be. If he was wrestling or if there was somebody he needed to talk to, he but just as a matter of course to come to Nashville, it wasn't that crucial. But how many miles away was his home from Nashville? 35. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, Hendersonville's up north there, but no, he was, he was making Memphis every Monday. He was in his office every day. He was at TV every Saturday morning. But, you know, he and he did the schedule as a wrestler for years where they were doing three and four shows every Saturday. So it's not like he was slacking off, but he didn't need to be there. It was house show. No, I didn't, I didn't mean it as slacking off, yeah. but like I can't see Vince McMahon Sr. missing the garden. You say, okay, that's the garden. Well, no, that's not the garden. Memphis no, no, is the garden. Of course, but I'm saying like if it was Washington, D.C. and Vince McMahon still lived there, would he miss a show or would he go to the show? If they had a show in Washington, D.C. in a building like the fairgrounds in Nashville, I bet you he'd miss it. And Jerry would go to Lexington to Rupp Arena much of the time also, especially when business was good. What about Lawler? Um, Okay, Lawler, on these shows, you can bet that Lawler was booked on all the Memphis shows that drew. Um, Probably most of the Louisville shows, probably few of the Evansvilles, and he was usually, unless they just absolutely couldn't arrange it, on the Rupp Arena shows in Lexington. He wouldn't work Nashville. See, here's the thing. When we're in Nashville on Saturday nights, there's another crew on in Jonesboro, Arkansas on Saturday nights, and that would generally be Lawler and Jimmy Hart and some of those guys because they lived in Memphis, and Jonesboro was only 75 miles from Memphis. So, so there's other shit going on here besides what I'm talking about. How hard is that to have the biggest star in your promotion not go to, let's say, Nashville, which runs every week, except maybe once a month or whatever it may be, but he's the biggest star on your promotion. Obviously, you localize 
Well, not I mean, he was. You have the shorter version of the show, so you can alter it to focus on whatever the big thing is in Nashville. But that sounds kind of crazy. He wasn't going to Nashville all the time. He not all the time. He was there, and I mean, for the big, you know, if he had a big program going on, but they didn't bring Terry Funk in for Nashville. The the economics weren't there. They'd bring Funk in for Monday, Tuesday, maybe Wednesday in Evansville, just because he was already in. Especially if there was a Thursday Lexington, then he's got four days. But that's why Terry wasn't on TV a lot in the studio, except when the Coliseum show was on a Sunday and he could stay over from Saturday. Because you got to fly the guy from Amarillo on Friday. No big money towns on Friday night. Nobody gets paid for TV on Saturday, except when he did the few times he made it, that was an exception. And then Saturday night to go to a town that's going to do 10 grand. Without Lawler on the card. Hey, you brought up Terry Funk. Was that January 83 when he was in there on TV? Yes. The, the, the day of the Super Bowl or the day before the Super Bowl. We're about to get there. Um. Anyway, so where were we? Ah, 16th was off, 17th Memphis, 18th Louisville, 19th Evansville, the 20th Bardstown, Kentucky which is literally 30 miles south of Louisville. Louisville ran on Tuesday night. And as a matter of fact, Dundee and referee Thomas Marlin beat me, Adrian and Linda. And Thomas was the stiffest referee and even worse. And he knew how to work, but he was just stiff. He was an old timer. But then they run 30 miles south at the high school in Bardstown on uh, the Thursday night, two days later, and did $8,400. At those ticket prices, I remember this one. At those ticket prices, that was almost 2,000 people. Almost as many as were at the gardens on Tuesday night. They had a great local sponsor at the school, and everybody came out. And Dundee had to work twice because I think Terry Taylor was hurt, but Dundee beat Apocalypse and then came back and worked with Adrian Street. But yeah, a spot show in Bardstown, Kentucky... 30 miles south of Louisville after Louisville is running weekly to begin with does almost 2000 people. So then on Friday, January 21st, my long national nightmare came to an end. I wasn't booked in Tupelo. I got a day off, but I had to go to Memphis that night because I had to do Memphis TV the next morning. And it's a fucking six hour drive. So I went to Memphis that night did TV the next morning, and then the Saturday night town that night, or that week that I was booked in, I think that was the third Saturday, and they had a flea market in Nashville. The third Saturday of the month, they didn't run wrestling because the flea market took the building over. So I was in Mariana, Arkansas. And that was about a hundred and... Oh, but not even 100 miles from Memphis, probably about 75 miles. And they did $1,747. I got a $50 payoff for managing in two matches. $1,747 at those prices, as we've illustrated, was still about 400 fucking people that I got to work in front of to figure out what the fuck I was doing. Well, you have a real positive attitude. Who in the back was grumbling about being on these shows, if anyone? In Mariana, Arkansas, everybody but me. <laughs> But you see, and I, you and saw I, it that way, though? Like, even in the moment, you saw it that way? Like, this is my learning opportunity. I'm happy to be here. Well, 
I don't. I, did, I wasn't recognizing everything as, as a learning opportunity as much as I am now. I was still happy to be there. I was like, well, you know, I could be for fucking $25, the ring announcer, or I could not even be here. But instead, I'm at least on the show. And then in hindsight, I've realized how much experience I got and how quick an amount of time, because I'm not going to spoil anything, but basically... I had three days off in the month of January, but I worked four double shots counting the TV day tapings on Saturdays and was working one to three times per night, either managing or wrestling all in the same fucking month and made uh, almost three grand. I did $2,800 as the lowest paid guy in the, you know, in the fucking territory which today would be no i'm sorry i made 2685 i see it here which would be today over eight thousand dollars were you still doing any photos in January? yes yes i would get to louisville early set up my background down in the locker room and shoot all the post stuff that was going to be uh you know sold on the merchandise tables at both ends of the territory before the, the matches where I had to get dressed and go out and work. I just couldn't do ringside action stuff anymore. So were you still getting them developed and picking them up in the middle of all this schedule? I was, I was basically what I would do is on Tuesday nights, I'd come back and I would find all the negatives for the orders and I would get the rolls of film uh, ready to go that I'd shot to be developed for next week. And I'd go to bed about six in the morning. My mom would take the stuff into full-tone photo company for me and while i was in louisville for the midweek louisville tuesday evansville wednesday and one of teeny's spot shows on thursday they would work on that and friday before i would leave for tupelo or memphis or wherever the fuck at the other end of the territory i was going i would stop by and pick that stuff up so that i could take it to the guys and deliver it that weekend which was goddamn hectic also but I was doing about as well on the pictures almost as I was on the managing. So this is just the managing money. Anyway, real quick, let's finish it up. I got a couple of more. Monday the 24th was Memphis. Again, Bill Dundee and Terry Taylor against Adrian Street and Apocalypse. We're having return matches. We're doing fucking stipulations. The house there was $17,000. Then I went to Louisville, where the house the following night was $17,000. And for Louisville, 17 to 20 grand at that point was very good. And that's because Bockwinkle and Lawler was in the main event. But 17 grand in Louisville at that point was a little over 4,000 people. Then Evansville, the next night, I know definitely that Lawler and Bockwinkle was on top because the house was $7,300 and that was amazing for Evansville. And hey. I'll have you know, uh, go ahead. Do you know anything about, obviously it's not the NWA champion or anything, but what kind of cut, if any, did Bockwinkle just get paid like any wrestler would, or because he was the AWA champion, did he get a different kind of split? There was no percentage deal for Bockwinkle or the AWA champion over and above what a guy would normally get, but because Bockwinkle was Nick Bockwinkle, I'm pretty sure that just from... Knowing what I know about other deals that were done in this area and other areas at the time, 
Nick would have probably had a promise from Lawler or Jarrett, you will make at least X dollars per show, but if it's really a good house, you're going to get more. And he would know that before he came down. He wouldn't be surprised by his check. Well, maybe he'd still be surprised, but he would expect it. But there was no, there was no, let's send 10% to Vern or whatever the case, like for well, the NWA even, champion back in the day. I thought of it more like a, and this is an extreme example, just a chic thing. Like, okay, I'm the AWA champion for me to come in there. I need to get, you know, 5% or something. Well, no, the thing is, I don't know if he, if he'd have wanted to work in Evansville for 5%, he'd have probably, oh, fuck no. You know, <laughs> maybe not Evansville, <laughs> but see, you know, it, it, but it depended, but it was something like that. It was a, it was a deal where we, you know, we're going to take care of you. Like when we first went to work for Crockett, he said, what have you been making in Dallas? We said, we've been averaging a thousand dollars a week in Dallas. And that's the absolute least that we can come for. And we'd rather have more. And he said, I promise you, you'll make at least a thousand dollars a week. And we always did until we got figured into the programs, started making more. But I, I was going to mention also on January 26, 1983, I paid $32.31 for a selection of yachting caps from Caulfield's Novelty here in Louisville. But you don't know how many? It just says yachting caps. I, don't, I think I probably got three or four. I don't know. They were <laughs> probably about seven bucks a piece. We got to bring that back. And then... That's how uh, we reintroduce you on WWE TV. Heyman's got the bloodline. No one would expect this. All of a sudden, close up on a yacht at sea, and it's Jim Cornette with just a bevy of beauties all around him. I got all the money. I told you all that one day I'd be rich. Now I'm really rich. Mama left me everything. You take it from there. And guess who's driving the boat? Who? Ted Turner. Ted Turner? We're coming for you, Vince, after all this time. Gonna win the America's Cup? Well, he a he's he's successful on the on the yachting uh, surface or uh, circuit on the rather. surface, yes, on the, the circuit, known as the ocean say, surface. Yes. What I was trying to say was on Thursday, January twenty seventh, we went back to Nashville because that was the alternate night when the flea market took over the previous weekend. He got to come back on Thursday, and then went on to Memphis because the following day was a spot show in Brownsville, Tennessee. Brownsville, Tennessee did $5,000. That would have been probably around 1,200 people. And then uh, Memphis TV was Saturday morning, obviously, again, as normal. And then we went back to Nashville because there were five Saturdays in... Um, in January, so they ran Nashville on Thursday, January 27th. It did a $4,900 house on an off night, or a little bit over 1,000 people. And then they came back two days later on the regular night, Saturday night, but at the end of the month, and we did $11,231. That was another record with the high prices. And I believe Lawler may have been on that show. But I know that I managed uh, Adrian and Apocalypse against Dundee and Terry Taylor. And I only got a $75 payoff, which indicates that we were not the main event on that card. And then Sunday, January 30th, we go back to Memphis. And that is the day of the Super Bowl. You talked about the previous day's Memphis TV was where Funk had ripped my pants off. 
Come to think of it, that Ed Funk was in Nashville that night with Lawler. Had to be. $11,231. But then we went back to Memphis and did the uh, Coliseum show where it was Lawler, Funk, and Coco Ware against Hearts guys. And against the fucking Super Bowl, it did $23,000 or somewhere uh, uh, close to 6,000 people on a Sunday afternoon. And then we finished up the month on January 31st in Clarksdale, Mississippi, where unfortunately the ghost of Robert Johnson did not re-manifest itself, but we did $5,600, which was well over a thousand people in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And I got a $50 payoff because I guarantee you Lawler was on that one and he got most of it. And that was my month again. I was working between two and three times a night. I had three days off, but we did four double shots. But I made the equivalent of $8,000 in today's money to be the fucking flunky on the card. Adrian had been wrestling in England for years. He had come over to the States a little bit before this. Obviously, Los Angeles was dying when he got there. Yeah. What did he think of this schedule? Um, It was... It, well... It, Everybody from the United Kingdom remarks on how big the United States is and how much people rely on driving instead of public transportation and how once that he, I mean, Los Angeles, he was used to cities, London, and he'd been to Calgary and he'd been to Mexico City. But when he got down south, when you went to, when you took Adrian Street to Clarksdale, Mississippi, he got noticed. But also he was like, bloody hell. He was gobsmacked, as they say, at, the sights that he saw traveling the back roads of Tennessee and northern Mississippi and southern Arkansas, it was a whole different world. And But he loved to—he fucked with people in a good-natured way. He would do his gimmick, but not to be offensive or to be heelish, to be friendly with waitresses or people working cash registers or, you know, whatever. He would just make little comments, and they, they're looking at him like he just came in from a spaceship. But it was, it was definitely eye-opening. And I should mention also, Adrian was making more money than I was. I mean, probably... Did Linda and, get a payday too? Oh, yeah. Linda got paid. She probably didn't get paid as much as I did. She probably was on like... The, the guarantee was $50. You couldn't make less than 50 bucks a night if you showed up. She probably got the $50 guarantee I probably was getting more like 60 or 75 in that time period because I was managing other people and appearing more than once. Adrian got more money yet because he was the wrestler. So he was probably, if I, if I made, what did I say, 625 for one of those weeks, he was close to 1,000. I guess that was my, be, my question, though, was like, was it a package deal? When Adrian comes in, is it? You know, my wife comes with me, you have to pay her, or my wife comes with me. I mean, how does it work? I mean, that well, in, in those days, I mean, uh, if it was an established deal like Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin and Precious, they once they got on television, started working together, that was part of the gimmick. And some guys would say, hey, can you book my girl to be in my corner? Well, no, not just to get your family an extra payoff, but if it's part of the ongoing gimmick that you're working and you're traveling from territory to territory, then the valet would get a secondary payoff or potentially manage your money. 
and the wrestler would get a little bit more, but they both get paid. And with when Adrian came in with Linda, he needed a manager because the one thing that he had not done, they didn't do promos in England. He was a great talker and an entertaining guy, but he didn't have the experience that he had in every other facet of wrestling, wrestling in the ring, promoting his own shows, whatever. He didn't have that in doing two-minute promos or 30-second pre-tapes or get in and get out. And the only place he had been prior to out of the UK prior to coming to Tennessee was Calgary, which they kind of did, in promos obviously, but Mexico, which they really didn't, and Los Angeles, where it was almost dead anyway. You know, I don't so, know if I've, I don't know if I've ever seen footage of Adrian Street with Ed Whalen. I got to search that out. You know, that could have been interesting. <laughs> um, but so, so the point was, I didn't. Usually, the managers got paid less. Remember, that's why Bobby Heenan left Bruiser because he fucked him on the payoff when they sold out Madison Square or Madison Square got Market Square Arena, and he managed the Sheik against Bruiser, but he was still paying him like Bobby. So that's the point: is that. Uh, you know, I, I was making good money for the, the cachet I had in the industry, but that was kind of on the lower level of what guys were making at that point in time. And when you, and guys always bitched about their money, but when you were making the equivalent in today's money of $8,000 a month, or even back then $2,685 a month, I'm 20 fucking one years old. And I've just started this job. What the fuck? How am I going to complain? And I got to work seven days a week and be in the car 2,000 miles. But most of the time when I'm in the car, it's with somebody else that knows more than I do telling me about my new job or giving me advice. And then, not to mention the companionship aspect, which that door opened as well as just the fun of what you were fucking doing, because it was fun, except when you were, you know, getting the shit kicked out of you by the fucking fans. I don't know if you would have this notated, but considering this period of time and who you were working with, do you remember any specific lessons you would have learned that early in your career in January of 83? Oh, God. Well, even before that, but specific. I remember specific generalities. Of how to, you know, if you stayed after you'd fucked the baby face, but you stuck around to glorify and, you know, hot dog amongst the fans, Dundee would say, get the fuck out, leave with your heat. I learned that a lot of times guys wanted to stay out there if they'd have, if they'd have fucked the baby face and they won the match or they fucked him over, whatever. They would stand there, get their hands up and they want to yell with the people and let them yell back and they think they're getting all kinds of heat. He said, no. So when you get mad at somebody, and you start yelling at them, if you yell at them and scream at them, call them every name in the goddamn book for 10 minutes, at the end of that, how much, how mad are you still at them? Whereas if somebody does something that makes you so fucking mad, and by the time you can start to go, you know, good motherfucker, he's leaving, he's gone, God damn you, I'll see you next week and I'll tell you what I think about you. It's subtle little things like that that, especially the the fan base of that time, you know, was conditioned to that you could work with and you just little timing things or being in, in the right position or the right side of the ring 
or, you know, feeding gimmicks in or whatever. I've, <laughs> I've told you a story about the chain in the, in the cage match, right? I'm not sure. The, I've, I was used to, I'd learned to throw gimmicks in, like pitch the heel a chain or pitch the heel my shoe or whatever when the referee's back is turned. But we're in Nashville one night, and it's the Fabs against, goddamn, I think it was the Fabs against uh, Adrian and Jesse, maybe. But whoever the fuck it was, it's a cage match. So I'm supposed to throw a chain into the fucking, into my guy, into the heel, right? No, I, it was the assassins, Roger Smith and Donnie Bass. I'm supposed to throw a chain into the cage to one of the assassins where he's going to get it and try to fucking do something with it, but the fabs are going to duck it and fucking beat him. And Roger told me, make sure, and Donnie both, they were great teachers also, and they used to take bumps with me, where they'd just grab me and take me along with them. I didn't know how to take the bump, but it didn't matter. They'd say, just go with me, and off I'd go. He said, make sure you throw the chain all the way over the top of the cage, way up in the air where the fans can see it coming in, right? So they know what you did. Okay. I fucking wind up when he holds his hands out and makes the motion like, give me something. I throw that chain way up over the top of the cage so it's going to fall right in the middle of the ring. And guess where it fell? Right on top of the ring lights. <laughs> and mother... And, I don't know that story. But at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, they both improvised because there was Roger with his hands out trying to catch something, looking up, and he just froze when he saw it. And it, Kern came, because he saw the same thing, Kern came with the flying forearm as the assassin is looking up over his head and hit him right on the button and fucking boom, one, two, three, and got out of it. That's how quick they improvised. But anyway, that was just... How did he not lose it and laugh? I mean, of all the things to happen, that is just ridiculous as you're well, waiting for it. Well, see, the guy with the mask on, he probably was laughing, but we couldn't tell. And Kern was laughing when he covered him. But he had his hair down over his face. But, you know, just that kind of shit, how to be in the right place, how to do what you're supposed to do in the right timing and looking at the people and where and don't turn your back on the people. All the things that you learned by going out there every night and trying shit. And either if you did something really stupid, somebody would notice and say, don't do that anymore. Or if you did something good and it got a pop in the match, your guy you were managing or the baby face or whatever. Yeah, more of that. And briefly, I managed Tommy Gilbert as the ace of spades. They'd used Tommy so many times. He came back from, God, I think it was Puerto Rico, and they put a mask on him like anybody in Tennessee didn't have Tommy Gilbert's physique and working style ingrained in their brain. But I got to manage him as a heel. And, you know, he'd teach me a few things. And then when he unmasked and we turned on him, I got to wrestle him like on two different spot shows and he would whisper to me like when I was, when it was time to get heat on him, we'd thrown powder in his eyes or whatever. And I'd get in, he'd say, okay, choke me, choke me. Now drop the elbow. I dropped the elbow. He said, do another one. Keep it up. Keep it up. Boom, boom, boom. Now look at the people. You're happy. He's calling all this shit. And I, all I had to do was do it. Anyway. Nowadays, it seems like there are a lot of people who get into the business, they are around a lot of people their age. How many people 
1983, who was the closest in age to you and how many people were within a few years of your age, as opposed to a lot of veterans Uh, who have been around that you can learn from? Let me look at some of the people I'm interacting with. Bobby Fulton was my age. And he was the, at that time, the, you know, bottom rung totem pole baby face on the roster. This was before the Fantastics or the Fabulous or the Fantastic Ones or, you know, anything else. But uh, Terry Taylor, this was 1983. Terry Taylor started in the business in 78, 79, and he'd gone to college. So he was six, seven years older than me. Mike Boyette, Apocalypse, was, God, easily almost 40 at that point. Adrian Street was in his early 40s. Bill Dundee was late thirties. Um, Jacques Rougeau Jr. was there. He's five or six years older than me. Jesse Barr, that's not was close to my age also. He was only like 23, but he was second generation. Um, there's uh hold on. I'm looking for different names. Cause I mean, you're talking Lawler. Lawler was at the time. He's uh, still is 12 years older than me. Bachwinkle was in his forties at that point. Um, the assassins, the assassins that, well, they were in a little bit later on that year, but Roger and Donnie were both probably 40 by then. Uh, there, there were young baby faces. Coco Ware is probably three or four years older than me. He had started in 78, but here's the thing. It wasn't necessarily the age at that point. Riggy Morton was almost ready to turn 30 at that point, but he'd been wrestling for, in 1983, for like six years. Robert Gibson was at that point in 1983, he was 25, but he he started wrestling when he was 17 because of Ricky, his older brother. You had a lot of guys that were still fairly young, but they had turned pro as teenagers. So they were more experienced than guys now that you see that are 22 years old and They've been wrestling for a year and a half, but twice a week, maybe. These were guys who, when when they were 17, they started working a territory, so they're like me. Instead of managing where they're working multiple times a night, they're working at least once, but maybe there's a battle royal and double shots or whatever. But say they're having eight matches a week over a four-year period. By the time they're fucking 22 years old, they've had goddamn a couple thousand matches. So it's a different time progression also. And that's another reason also why that the guys knew to make shit mean something. You didn't want to get hit with a chair 12 times. You wanted to get hit with a chair once that looked so good and sounded so good and caused such a reaction that people would go, oh, shit over one chair shot, because if you did it on Tuesday, you had to do it on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, too. Well, 12 chair shots a night adds up. So let's get some mileage. The big bumps, the big finish, whatever, make everything mean something to the people so they enjoy it, and they they get into the story you're telling but you're not killing yourself in six months to tell it. That was, those guys could, and I mean, look at the bumps Lawler took. 
through the 70s and 80s, downstairs, over, being run over by cars, off the tops of things, over the top rope, thousands of bumps in the ring. And yes, he was somewhat of a fucking Teflon magician that he'd never had a major surgery and still was a movie stuntman for 30 years. But all the top guys in the territories, they had their specialties. They had the shit they did, and they were confident they could do it, and they built it and made it mean something. And when people saw it, they lost their shit. But it was a work. They weren't really damaging each other's brains. So anyway, that's how you could draw between twenty and 40,000 people in Memphis to the live matches every fucking month. By keeping it interesting and making things mean something. And if you wanted to make more money, it had to mean something and people had to come back. It couldn't just be, I'm going to make this money no matter what. I could do whatever I want. It doesn't matter if no one comes back. Yeah, and because nobody was on a guarantee. Some people, as I said, like with Bachwinkle, Jackie Fargo, I have some paychecks from the Jarrett Welch Wrestling Company. I've mentioned before, Joe LaDuke was a top heel in the summer of 1978, but business was not at record levels then. But I have a check where he made on one typical week, he made about $1,000 in 1978. That would be close to $4,000 today. And I have uh, Jackie Fargo, who if anybody had a guarantee in Tennessee, it would have been him. He was the man, right? Jarrett brought him over for a Memphis show and the check is for $500. He probably just said, Jackie, I'll give you 500 bucks. Come over and work. Okay. But if that house had been a sellout, Jackie would have probably been asking for 750 But $500 in 1979 is the equivalent of a couple grand today for him to work one show. Jackie Fargo was not going to come and work Clarksdale, Mississippi. He was past that. So even though there were not guarantees, contracts certain people had verbal guarantees or minimums or they were a guy you just knew to take care of and you knew what their tolerance level was and you know there's all the old stories of bobby fulton used to tell this goddamn i can't think now who it was but the old promoter would pay you in ones because he'd pay everybody in cash and you had to come in after the show and he'd start reeling off the money right? And you'd have your hand out and he'd be putting those ones in your hand. And whenever he saw you smile, he'd quit. He fair, that's when you're happy. So he saved money that way. But other, other times, like with an Ernie lad, you knew ahead of time, if you were a promoter, I got to take care of this guy somewhat or elsewise, it's going to be bad on me because he's going to leave me, stick me in the middle of something. If I'm, if I'm not, you know, forthcoming with what he believes he ought to have. So there was all kinds of deals like, but it made it interesting. Complacency is the enemy of creativity and hard work. When you know you're going to get the same amount of money per night, per week, per month, whatever, no matter what you do, whether it's any good or not, whether you even do it or not, or whether you sit in catering, that, you know, it, it's great for guys' families and financial planning, but it takes the edge off of how great somebody can be when they want to go out and work for it and get over and go on to the next place that's going to be even better. 
and create something. That's where the territory system was motivation when it came to the way you were paid. And I know a lot of the old guys are going to go, well, fuck that. But back then, the guys wanted to get on top. They wanted to be in the main events, not only to make the money, but to be a star. There was easier ways to make money for a lot of people than this business if you sat down and thought about it. But where else are you going to make this kind of money and be a fucking TV star? Well, Jim, as we wrap this up, because it referenced something earlier, if you don't mind, I have something here, because I had made a copy of this. September 22nd, 1979, a letter from Norm Keitzer to Christine Jarrett. It's to Miss Christine Jarrett from Jarrett Welch Wrestling Company. I won't give the address, but it also has her number and Jerry's Actually, number. Actually, wait a, wait a minute. At that 1979, was it the landings? It was Princeton Avenue. Okay, that's, okay, that's her address then. Jerry lived on that side. Eddie Marlin put his goddamn home address in the program one time when he wanted people to write in to ask about a wrestling school or whatever. But he didn't say that it was his, this is where Eddie Marlin lives, but they, they wouldn't even get a post office box in those days. They'd use their own addresses. There was no Google. You couldn't look anything up. And it was never listed as people's specific addresses, but they used their own. But yeah, she was on Princeton in Nashville. September 22nd, 1979. Dear Mrs. Jarrett, this is a letter to confirm Pat Malone's telephone order for 1,000 copies of the Wrestling News number 56 to be sent to you in October. Also, I would like to ask you a favor. I haven't received any new photos and stories from Jim Cornette <laughs> since this spring. What date is this? September 22nd. Oh, shit. I had told him in July when I paid him for the last bunch he sent me that I would like more. My partner, Jim Melby, also talked with Jim Cornette at the fan convention in Memphis, and everything was fine. He went through his book of photos with Melby, and Melby picked out some we wanted Prince to use in the magazine and paid Mr. Cornette for them with Jim's promise that he would send those photo prints to use as soon as he got additional copies made. So far, we have never received the last bunch of photos that Jim Melby paid Jim Cornette for at the convention. Well, now, to be fair, the convention was the end of July, so we're only six weeks have passed. I was busy. I don't know what has happened, and possibly there was some misunderstanding. If Jim Cornette is still taking pictures at your matches, <laughs> I would appreciate if you would ask him what the problem is. <laughs> I know he and Pat Malone do not get along. What? <laughs> so I didn't mention this to Pat, but I want to get along with everyone, and if possible, sometimes to get photos from Jim Cornette, as many of his are very good. I'll send you a copy of the first issue of the Rings Wrestling Magazine that I do, and you can look it over and see if you'd like to order any copies of it. Thank you, Norman Keitzer. Okay, let me clarify. He still thought, because you know, did you ever talk to Norman? Or were, was he still around when you would have been no. talking to people? No. He was a very, I won't say timid, but he was a very slow-talking, mannerly person. And it was still from 19, what was it, 76, early 77, 
over the deal where he credited Pat Malone for the pictures. And I wrote him and I was like, you gave Pat credit for my pet. Oh, he sent him in. Still, he thought, well, they don't get along. No, I always got along with Pat. I wasn't going to say anything sideways to Pat Maloney to cut my fucking head off. The fucking green shadow. And he just said he wouldn't even ask Pat about it. He knew- yeah, he didn't want to. He didn't want to stir anything up. See, Norman didn't want to get anything stirred up with anybody. Well, you've seen some of the letters where, yeah, you know, he got sideways with Vince Senior or whatever. They didn't want it. Blah blah blah. But no. But the thing was, the that was the 1979 was the WFIA convention in Memphis, and I remember seeing Jim Melby there, and that's when August 79. I started going to guess, you know what? I was about to turn 18, started going to more shows. I was working more at that point for Bill after sending him stuff. The picture table had gotten busy and I just had a bunch of shit going on. And to be honest, uh, you know, Norman's was the smallest circulation, you know, publication that I was involved in at that point in time. but. It was important to Teeny for the merchandise table. So if you remember, guess what happened in 1980, less than a year after that letter? That's when Norm and his Pro Wrestling Enterprises started publishing my championship wrestling magazine, which was completely about the Tennessee Territory and sold better than the wrestling news because it was all of our guys that the fans were familiar with. And basically during that, because he was coming out with rings wrestling at that point that was on the newsstand. And I did some stuff for that. Also, it was just getting to be a lot of shit going on at the same time. So there was never any heat. It just that I was a fucking overstressed teenager. Yeah. I mean, it comes across too. you know, he doesn't want to really, he just wants to know what the problem is. He doesn't want to really get involved or talk to anyone directly yes, it, about it. <laughs> no, if I was, even then, the same thing was true. If you don't hear from me, everything's fine. It's only if you hear from me, I will tell you if there's a problem. But yes, but we got, we got all together on that. So, and that's right. In 1980, I was doing stuff for the Gong Magazine in Japan. I was doing all the pictures for the programs that were sold in the Tennessee Territory. I was still sending stuff into Norman for the wrestling news and his new ring wrestling. Plus we were starting to do the new championship wrestling magazine. And he had taken over wrestling review by that point also. And, and, and that's the thing is they were constantly combining and he had different, I've got a whole set of these things and I can't even put them in order because he has such a confusing (laughs) numbering system and cover dates. Uh, but Gong Magazine programs, Bill After London Publishing, and all of these multiple magazines that Norman was doing while I was doing all the, the gimmick table photos and ring announcing either one or two nights a week out of the four nights a week of matches that I was going to. So it was starting to take a while for me to get shit. But you know what? Back in those days, the goddamn printing deadline for the November issue was fucking. July. It was like a three-month turnaround to get anything printed back in those days, even after's magazines. Or Stanley Weston's magazines, as they were also. Well, I never met Stanley. I understand he had gotten a lot of heat in the industry before Bill came in and smoothed it over with people. 
Well, Jim, imagine back then on the road taking those photos. Imagine if you had some sort of mechanism to go and create a website before there were websites and sell these great photos to whoever wanted to purchase them. You know, that's exactly right. Imagine if I had been able, as a teenager, as industrious as I was, all the contacts I had, if I had been able to have a platform, Brian, that would have sold these fine photographs and magazines and products all over the world, well, it would have been amazing, rather than just Kentucky, Tennessee, and parts of Tokyo. But folks, you can do this now. You can sell shit all over the world. Or any place that has people in it, at least. I don't know about the Amazonian rainforest, but we're talking about our friends at Shopify, the commerce platform that's revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Folks, we've talked about it before. Whether you're one of these garbage entrepreneurs, wait a minute, that says gar garage. Whether you're one of these garage entrepreneurs, or it's me, I'm a garbage entrepreneur. That's right. I bleed He's everywhere. Dope. He bleeds everywhere and then bottles it and sells it to his customers. <laughs> or if you're IPO ready, that means an international piss-off notice. Whatever you are, Shopify is the only tool that you need. <laughs> See, Brian, you have a tool working on the show with you, but Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Now, for example, let's say you're selling government secrets to foreign powers. You want to get on the internet and have a nice-looking platform to well, do no, something like that. Let's not say that. That is certainly not something legal to sell and not something we would want to encourage anyone to sell if they actually had these secrets. Well, let's say you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system. Let's do that. Well, and right there, that point of satin system will sell your satin sheets with as much alliteration as possible. Or let's say you're offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform. Whatever the case, Shopify has the Internet's best converting checkout to help you turn these people from browsers to buyers, from tire kickers to contented customers. And Shopify powers 10% of all the e-commerce in the United States. The Featherbottoms only have 7% in their whole market share. And Shopify is truly a global force powering all birds, Rothies, and Brooklinen. What the hell are you saying? I don't know. It's on the copy here. They power all birds, Rothies, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size, shape, color, and origin across over 170 countries. Apparently, all birds, Rothies, and Brooklinen are just tearing the, tearing the business up in whatever business they're in, but Shopify made them. It wasn't due to their hard work. It was Shopify. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. If you need help, you call them up, and they're going to say, we support you. Go out and work harder. No, that's not what they're going to say. They're going to say, we support you. What can we do to help you? And let's make this a wonderful experience for you and the customer. Well, that's, that's another way of looking at it. They're your no-excuses business partner. You can sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your ideas. Shopify helps you open up the shop. Now, let's say, for example, you want to sell, I don't know, possibly weapons-grade plutonium or no. market. No. 
You, no? you, I don't even know where you're going with the black market. You got me at weapons-grade plutonium. Let's not say you're going to buy that. Let's say you're going to actually avoid that. But maybe you want to buy some marbles. Marble? I think you've lost yours. But let's say you want to buy any, any product that's in demand around the world. Or let's say you want to sell it. If you want to sell a product that's in demand around the well, last time I heard plutonium was highly prized, but I'll go with whatever you think. We're not saying we're not going with plutonium. We're not going to sell any plutonium on Shopify, but Shopify will get help you get paid. They'll make getting paid simple because they instantly accept every type of payment. I, I don't every type of I guess that includes that uh, that Bitcoin and currency that some countries issue in in exchange for weapons grade plutonium but they'll accept the payment well what you just said is probably true but has nothing to do with shopify that's how people use crypto in weird dark places of the world well and speaking of dark places you don't want a dark website you want a bright one that looks attractive gorgeous flexible templates and powerful tools to customize your online store you're going to get that at shopify that way if you want to sell a variety of Illegal and illicit drugs, they're going to look good. No! You're going to have, gonna have no! pretty colors on That's your LSD Absolutely tablets. not. Metaphorically no? speaking, these are metaphorical drugs that Jim is speaking of because that is, that is highly illegal. Listen, you could sell legal, wonderful things, your own creations well, to your and, own and customers a, all yeah, over the world. Create things, make things, and sell them. And they're in 170 countries, so you never know what's legal in Pakistan or Cambodia. You know, but nevertheless... Worry about what's legal in the country that you are coming from. Well, I can understand where you're coming from, pal. Running a growing business means getting the insights you need wherever you are in all of those 170 countries with Shopify's single dashboard. You can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, all with one hand on the steering wheel. And folks, once again, all you got to do to start making the money, start selling your products, start becoming a big business typhoon. You got to Tycoon. Huh? Tycoon. Who's he? Not Typhoon. I wasn't talking. I was talking about uh, who were you talking about? I'm talking about Shopify. You're yeah. talking about who is Tycoon? Well, you said Typhoon. Yeah, you want to be a big business Typhoon. I don't know who Tycoon is. Typhoon's the guy who fell through the walls of Shockmaster. Tycoon is what you want to be. Someone making lots of money controlling your interests. You can be that. You can be who you want to be. Do what you want to do. Go where you want to go. With Shopify.com, sign up right now for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Cornet. Go to Shopify.com slash Cornet to take your business to the next level today. It'll be up on a high level with me, just as high as I am. Shopify.com slash JCE to make your money. That's right. We have traveled to the future once again. Have you You're enjoying that way too much. That's right. That's my new uh, hydrosynth. We're going to have to... Are we on tape now? Are we doing this, actually? Are we going to talk about... Analog. What we witnessed last night, That now that we've traveled through time? 
Listen, there was a very hey. Here's your here's your tweet. How many times during this week's AEW Dynamite <laughs> did you ask yourself what the fuck is happening? <laughs> Choices are two times, three times, five times, or thirty-seven times. And you've so far you've got seventeen hundred and eighty-five votes in the last hour. Which uh, number is winning? Well, I don't know how to see that. Oh, what does- do I do? Do I click on something or? I think you may have to vote. Well, then I'll goddamn vote 37 times. Ah, 37 times is winning with 83% (laughs) of the vote to 9.5% for five times, 4.4% for three times, and 3% for two times. And as we mentioned, that's with 1,786. No, I'm sorry, it just updated. 1,886 votes. And there's 22 hours left in this uh, polling. Good night. I like that someone said, you know what? It was only two times if I think about it. I don't. Well, one person says I got super stoned to watch this. And even then I was disappointed. Listen, if there was ever an episode of AEW Dynamite, that was a fever dream. It was last night's episode of AEW Dynamite as we are recording. It was astounding. It was awful and hilarious at the same time. And I literally said, what the fuck is happening multiple times? It was unlike any other episode. And we've seen some classics, some humdingers of awfulness. <laughs> some humdingers. But this uh, was... Wait a minute. There's more comments from fans. Uh, one person said 37 in a row. Another person says, I need another option, which would be all the show. There's a picture of a flaming dumpster floating down a river. <laughs> There's... <laughs> One person said, I had to rethink it because I swear I was at 36, but you were right. I forgot to double what the fuck for the blatant chair to the headshot. Which one? Uh, Another one. My dog's name is Mookie, and he just kept staring at my phone the whole segment. It was the first time anything else was the number one segment over Reggie's Corner in the Key Animal demo. <laughs> See that's funny. And it's uh yeah, it's going on and along like that. Well, let's See, that's why it was a fever dream. It's like I hated so much but I couldn't hate it past the point of hilarity because I was just like what the fuck is happening? Well, that that's the same thing. I was you'll see I started making my notes where I was attempting to seriously critique the program as as a program. And then the more that it went on, I realized, wait a minute, it's just, if this is a two-hour angle that they expect us to continue watching when the the exact same thing is happening over and over with different people doing it, and you, it, 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 there was there a match on the program? Well, there was a women's match, Britt Baker versus the return of the bunny. Was there a match on the program? The Young Bucks against the um, the Young Guns? The, um, Was the guns. there a match on the program? <sighs> Orange Cassidy well, I mean, they... versus Wheeler Yuta. Okay, there was the match on the program, folks, and now you understand. <laughs> All right. I, I... And they were in Nashville, Tennessee. Nick Goulas is spinning in his grave, and he put on some humdingers. But never, never anything. And Tony, it was like Tony realized, wait a minute, all of a sudden, I haven't done any angles or put together any matches except for the 
main two for Wembley Stadium, so I'm going to do two hours of angles amongst people that I will throw them in stipulation matches and gimmick matches on the biggest show that I ever have or ever will run. Oh, that's what you And thought. announce it 10 days ahead of time. I thought Tony said to himself, you know, I haven't done any acid in quarter three yet. I think I'll start this Wednesday and write the show. I mean, a lot of people are going to say, well, why did he need to announce the matches? They've already sold 80,000 tickets. Well, then in that case, just have fucking matches. Don't announce eight of them complete with similar angles on the same two-hour program. You still need to build it aware that you don't announce everything in the same show and confuse everybody and have to do all of this nonsense over and over to make it make any sense, which it didn't to begin with. Well, and the other problem beyond the late announcement is beyond one or two things, it's a really underwhelming card on paper. I think people in England were expecting they're going to give us this big WrestleMania type event (laughs) as opposed to dynamite supersized. Well, that, that's what it is. On paper, to Tony, it's a big event because there's tons of multi-person, no rules, uh, you know, um, impressive names of the matches. Wow, that sounds great. And that's what he thinks is wrestling is. And that's what these minions that work for him, especially on Wednesday nights, think they're supposed to be doing. This right here was every indie wrestler's wet dream television show. People who have never been anywhere, nor will never get anywhere, nor understand anything about professional wrestling as a business or an industry or whatever, this is the kind of shit that they fucking think is great. And they love doing it over and over and over again. So he's got children making up their own angles and doing them independent of whether somebody else is doing the same thing on a fucking show or not. Yeah, I mean, that's AEW. This was Tony Khan on acid on steroids. That's what this episode was. Should we go in order? Yes. I mean, it was. I actually called you up and said, please don't skip any of this. It's amazing. Well, it was too late. I'd skipped a bit of it, but I got the flavor before I started. Um, And obviously, skippable at the start, the opening match. Again, we're back to fucking the company mascot opening the program. Against Wheeler Useless. In defense of his cosplay title belt. And I wrote, so they've given up before they've even started tonight. I think of all the talents in the wrestling business that never got a break to show what they could do. Or a guy guy like Steve Bradley comes to mind. Or the main eventers in days gone by that were outstanding performers that didn't get paid properly or had injuries derail their careers early. And a fucking joke gets a free ride and a highly paid job because he's the fucking teacher's pet. How many of the guys in the locker room do you think would like to fucking shove a goddamn infected hypodermic needle in his spine as he walks by and catering? No, they love him. They all say great things about him. 
they all say wonderful things about him. How many people do you think are sitting there going, I've, I've got talent. I've got youth. I've got ability. I got a personality. Wait a minute. Now I'm thinking not many. Well, they're probably saying that to themselves, but in all seriousness, there are some talents there in the company. And they're sitting there looking at this guy getting 15 minutes to go out and jack off in a pair of fucking blue jeans and his fucking hatchet-headed haircut and his unimpressive fucking overall appearance just because the boss thinks he's cute. And he just did an interview. I just read quotes, at least, that were going around like the day before and the day of Dynamite. He did an interview saying that he's the one who got Wheeler U to his job in AEW. And so we got him for another thing to blame him for. But anyway, so, and I I thought, can you imagine a wrestling fan waking up from a coma after 30 years? And this is the first thing they see. And they're like, what now? Wrestling has turned into bum fights with homeless guys. You know, above any other episode or time in wrestling history, if you took someone from like the 1950s, the beginning of wrestling on television nationwide, (laughs) And they traveled forward into the future and landed here and said, oh, wrestling's on. Let me see what's on national TV on wrestling. And this was the episode. (laughs) That's that's like a mind-blowing future that you can't even imagine. And then you think, can I go back? Even if I can't go back in time, just put me back in the fucking coma. All right, so Pockets won. And then immediately Claudio and the plumber were in and were beating him up. Did you see Moxley's stomps? Yes. He thinks he's Austin. He's trying to prove that theory. You can get away with shitty corner stomps if you're Steve Austin. He ain't Steve Austin. But it wasn't any worse looking than anything else because here came the Puddin' Gang. And between who was the one guy, I think Useless was throwing fake punches that wouldn't have hurt my Aunt Lola. And they just they just all flail their arms and legs about. They're not even trying. They think if everybody's in motion, people won't focus on any one part of it to see that it's obviously phony and they're not trying. And then out come the Lucha Brothers and Alex, and they had more fake fighting. And there was a standoff for a minute where the I guess they're the baby faces. They cleared the ring and the BBC grabbed chairs and nothing happened. And then Tony apparently screamed, play Kingston's music. And then Kingston came out and had a sloppy fight with Claudio and everybody started the sloppy fight again. And the BBC bail out and go back out into the people. They're such hot heels. They just stand there. Nobody attempts anything. And... Kingston challenges for a stadium stampede match between whoever was in the ring and whoever was out on the floor. And I think he said, get you a couple of friends and they're going to have it at Wembley stadium. Oh joy. They did. What the fuck? We'll just have a stadium stampede match for no fucking reason whatsoever with fucking preliminary guys involved because we're in a stadium and it's five on five and that way there's more no rules bullshit to please all of these people that are coming thinking they're going to see a fucking wrestling event your your thoughts mr plumber jokes on you (laughs) Uh, 
you know the match i didn't really care i didn't watch the match i have to be honest this is the one thing I no you can't you can't but the post match again i watch moxley now because i'm convinced he can't do anything (laughs) so i watch him and you watch these stomps and they look awful and i remember like as a kid doing stomps on my friends on the front lawn yeah and every one of those kids from summer camp had better stomps than john moxley did here it looked really bad and then again it's one thing if it was like I'm and not hey, just... you, you, you forget, I've seen a lot of people literally on their first day of wrestling school, not as a joke. I've seen that. And, and most of them were better than that. And again, what is this setting up? It's not Orange Cassidy. Remember, briefly, he was like teaming with Darby Allen every week. Darby has two other feuds <laughs> to work on, so he can't be in a third one right now. It's him with, as you call them, the pudding gang. What is that? The best friends. Nobody wants to see that. You're forcing this thing. They had a match on Rampage that a very small audience watched, but it was the biggest one for Rampage in a while. And now they're doing their... Well, and they were. They had the ultimate garbage match wrestling, you know, in the parking lot and whatever the fuck. And now they want to try to top that with more shit that will just wear the poor folks in Wembley out before they see the matches they actually paid to see. I have to say, I've never been a fan of the stadium stampede, but this has to be the least anticipated one ever, right? The least well, demand you anticipate for one. You don't even we know who the opponents are. Ten days ahead of time. It, it, nobody's going to want to see it now that they know who's in it, but it, 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 anything that's announced ten days ahead of time would not be highly anticipated. You can't highly anticipate. Boy, as soon as I walk across this street, a bread truck's going to run me over. You don't have a lot of time to anticipate that. Who's going to be the Blackpool Combat Club's multiple surprise members? Will Danielson be back? No, he apparently the, well, I mean, they could be kayfabe and everybody, but a broken arm and why would you, oh, let's get the, one of the most biggest stars, most valuable members of the roster. He's just recovering from a broken arm. Let's put him in a fucking 10-man garbage match. You wouldn't do that anyway if you were not insane, which that doesn't preclude Tony, but. There you go. I'm going for Renee Moxley Good. I think she'd be a good partner on the other side. Hmm, interesting. She'd probably like the BBC. But 20 minutes into this program was, again, basically every indie wrestler's wet dream. Are you wheezing over there? I'm laughing at whatever it is you said. I don't know what I said, and I'm sure it, it was entirely accurate. So then Jim Ross sat down with Kenny Olivier about his Uncle Don, which apparently now he still feels like Don is still an uncle, but he's not as nice as Uncle Larry. When Olivier speaks, you realize why he's never going to make it as a the big star, the major star in wrestling, the great... He may be the great artist that people have deluded themselves in their mind on, you know, in, in the Tokyo Dome... And in this little fucking setting here, but he's never going to be Cody Rhodes because he can't fucking talk. He sounds like a complete douchebag. And and that was heavily the- edited. That was clipped oh, real tight, like nonstop. Our UK was edited in a fucking mix master. It was, it was cut to, sh- to ribbons, but he sounds like a douchebag and he says nothing in an interesting way. And it sounds like he cares little about what he's talking about. And in this one, <laughs> he explains how Don Callis is not his family. 
but did nice things for him and then says, well, you can't choose your family. Yes, you, you literally did because he's not yes. your family. That's what you just said. Well, because they were cutting it up that, you know, they were trying to make it make sense, but he was not mad. He wants to move on from this, not get even. This is what he's saying before the shit goes down. Because believe me, in every segment of this program, the shit is going to go down. But he wasn't mad at the heels' betrayal of him. He, well, I'm going to move on. You know, I still, still, because I just need to to get past this. What kind of fucking pussy, dickless, ballless, gutless, fucking babyface wrestling hero gets betrayed by the goddamn heel and wants to move on? Jim Ross, like. He stabbed you in the head with a screwdriver. <laughs> he said that. <laughs> he said, well, he did stab you in the head with a screwdriver. I just want to move on. So how can you... I mean, it's almost like they're they're trying on purpose to bring the joke to life. That Punk said, I'm sorry that, you know, you're the only people softer than you are the fucking wrestlers you like, and they are out there in a contest to prove that they are the softest people on earth. So he wants to move on, not get even with the family member that stabbed him in the head with a screwdriver because he's a fucking gutless douchebag. But then here comes Don Fallis. And as he comes in and says about three words, gin and juice come in from the back and fakely beat up Twinkle Toes and take a shit helps them. And they're in the empty Daly's place in Jacksonville in this giant, you know, stadium they have down there doing this interview. So they take him over and they bash him against a garage door, whatever the fuck. And it just looked so hokey. And JR just had to, to get up and shake his head and walk off. But the camera cuts, the way it was cut, it was the, hysterical. Yeah. Because it was just like, boom, boom, keeps boom, going back boom, to him, boom. Get the reaction shot of JR standing there going, God, that cowboy would have fired all of them for this phony-looking shit. And the best thing is, because it's in an empty arena, you get a lot of, Achoo! Achoo! Yeah! <laughs> They're making their own sound effects. <laughs> hush, hush, hush. Achoo, achoo, achoo. Nobody does that. That was some Bruiser Brody shit. Harley Race used to go, achoo, 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 when he was in the ring calling spots, but they, you don't do it in a goddamn fight in a parking lot. It, it... <laughs> <laughs> but again, we established that the guy got stabbed in the head with a screwdriver and he wasn't mad about it. So now they beat him up, but they didn't stab him. So I guess he shouldn't be too mad about this. Whoever edited this needs to go work for Adult Swim. It was hysterical. The way it was cut just made it into a comedy segment. There's no other way to look at it. It was ridiculous. But now I was like, oh, geez, because again, instead of getting gin and juice against FTR three out of five falls or whatever would have been a classic wrestling match that would have torn Wembley Stadium apart, we're getting FTR against the Buckaroos and gin and juice are tied up with these fucking cretins and their childishness. So there we go. Well, no, this was the episode where Beyond Punk, everything that has been enjoyable from Collision was dragged over to the world of Dynamite. That's what this episode was. 
and in some cases on multiple times on the same show. This was really bad. Omega can't talk, as we've always said, but it was cut in a way that made the whole thing funny. Jim Ross really added to it because, you know, he thinks this whole thing is ridiculous. And the way they edited the footage of him into it made the whole thing funny. I thought that was hysterical. I'm going to keep this on the DVR. I wonder if they could top this in terms of ridiculousness. And they did in the next segment. We didn't have to wait too long. Because now, since that sit-down interview was obviously was taped some time back before, you know, what earlier today, whenever it was, we've time has elapsed. And now we go to a a tape of Hangnail Page outside the hospital. He's gone to, he's rushed to the hospital to be by Twinkle Toes' side. And what they call outside, outside the, the hospital. <laughs> There's an ambulance parked in the back of the arena in front of one of those foldable garage doors. I think they call them elephant doors where they raise raise them up to put the big equipment in the building. And he's the one doing the promo saying, well, oh, Kenny, he ain't finished. And at Wembley Stadium, he's going to have me and Kota Idushi to help him. So we're getting Hangnail Page, Twinkle Toes, and their friend, Kota Ibushi, to help the to uh band together against Take a Shit and and uh Gin and Juice. So Gin and Juice are wasted. Take a shit's wasted. They're all polluted with the elite. But did you enjoy everybody goes right by? The 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 red lighting and the ambulance sitting four feet from a fucking garage door of an arena on your way to the emergency room at the hospital, right? Saying this was the hospital. It didn't look anything like the outside of a hospital. Saying it was the outside of the hospital. He was indoors. It was obviously indoors to begin with. Maybe he was inside the hospital and they were treating Twinkle Toes in the parking lot. That's what the issue was. You said you saw the ambulance. You saw the ass of the ambulance. You didn't see the whole ambulance. They couldn't back up or elsewise you would have seen the fucking arena walls. And he's drinking. He's off the wagon. That's the he's other thing. He's drinking a beer. He's drinking a beer outside the hospital with his camera crew until some random... While his friend is, is, is in danger. And he's back to his bad promos. I mean, not the day of And then the while. random guy. I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt you. And then the random guy shows up. This and was, he, it, it, he's well. You're really into this. Go, go, go. Well, no, go. the random guy is a hospital official. We know that because he's wearing like an AEW collared shirt, and and his lanyard around his neck says "medical staff." <laughs> and he says, "Sir, this is a hospital. You can't drink beer here." And so Paige chugs what I guess it was probably iced tea. If he'd have chugged a beer, he would have passed out. And hands him the can. So they even have to put a little of what they consider comedy in the fucking footage where one babyface is supposedly trying to swear revenge on behalf of another babyface to the fucking heels, and they still got to wink at us at the end of the thing. Hangnail Page is truly the definition of an empty-headed dumb fuck that has never done anything in the wrestling business, and he continues to prove that and continues to be that. And they don't give him any help to break that string. 
Hey, here's a question for you before we further evaluate this. Is this the promo that he showed up to Collision, the film? And the story's either he was told you're not allowed here or he was told we want to film it somewhere else? Is this the promo? Well, what other promo would it have been? Was the other place like outdoors? Like, hey, we don't want to film it here. We want to film it outdoors. So well, it, looks it seems like the outside like, of the hospital. <laughs> it seems like that being barred from the Greensboro Coliseum wouldn't have anything to do with shooting a promo outside a fucking hospital. Because I've been to the Greensboro Coliseum and they don't have a hospital in the parking lot. This was such a bad promo. It looked <laughs> like it looked like a porno set because it was ridiculous. <laughs> like it's him in front of the fucking garage door. And you know it's the back of the building because we've seen that. We've seen that garage door in every arena on every wrestling show for the last 25 years. Well, it's an arena garage door is what it is. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, it was so bad. And it followed that Omega segment, which was ridiculous. And instead of something that would make you think like, man, Adam Page is really feeling it for his friend. He's mad. He's going to get even. It was this. I throw it back to the early days of AEW. He's a sad drunk. He's drinking in the parking lot of the hospital. No. He's drinking in the parking garage of the hospital because the there was still a roof over their fucking head. That's true. That's true. Well, speaking of a roof over their head, can we move on to the next segment? Because both of these guys are lucky they have a roof over their head. If, if, they, if their original work in wrestling had been like this, they would be right now panhandling on the, on the street. Uncle Don is back. And he introduces Chris Jericho, and of course they go to the break in Jericho's entrance so we don't have to hear everybody sing. But when they come back, they're in the ring, and this is the, the point where Don asks Chris to give his answer. Is he going to join the Fallis family? And we, they've been milking us for weeks, and... You know, Jericho was like, I don't know, I start factions, I don't join them. And, you know, everybody was thinking, well, what the fuck? And he's lost the Jericho Appreciation Society over this. And now he stands there and he gives his answer as he thinks about it. Yes, yes, he will join Don's family. And Don is shocked. Wait, wait, what? Yes? And then he, Jericho says he needs to align with somebody like him, a low life like him, right? And so Don is happy, and he tells Jericho, well, let's go celebrate. But Jericho says, well, wait a minute, because there's a portrait covered up in the corner of the ring. It's on the easel. You know it's a painting or a portrait or a picture of some kind. And Don tries to play it off like, well, it's just a small little gift, but we'll, we'll look at it later. And Jericho wants to see it. And finally, he whips the covering off, and it is a picture of Don holding Jericho's disembodied head out in his hands. And Jericho's like, well, what is this? And Don, oh, oh, it's, it's, it's a rib. It's a rib. Well, no, that the artist screwed up or what? And then Jericho said, you thought I was going to say no, and you were going to have me assassinated or beheaded. And <sighs> so Jericho asked Don for the first time in your life, you be honest. So now Jericho was going to join the group shortly ago, but now he tells Don he's, he's always a liar. He's never been blah, blah, blah. So he really was going to join up with a guy that's 
was as low as he was. And then Don tells Jericho, well, fuck it. I thought you were going to say no because of your massive ego that's ruined your entire life and run off all your friends. And but they just tell each other off now. And then Don slaps Chris. And Chris grabs Don. And here comes Take a Shit with Will Ostrich. They hit the ring. And they beat up Jericho, and they hit him with a chair, and they break the painting over his head, and Jericho gets color. And he, a pap smear, but it still, it was color. And he's bleeding. And then here comes Sammy Guevara in with a baseball bat, and all the heels bail out. So now I guess Jericho is officially, after he has become the most popular heel, in the well, with the exception of MJF, in the company and sapped off everybody's the appreciator's heat and the heat of all of the baby faces. Now he switched back baby face so he can do the same thing to the other side of the roster. Your thoughts on this performance, Brian? The performance was really bad. Again, one of those classic Chris Jericho Monday Night Raw wannabe segments. But to get past the performance. It doesn't make any sense. Why is any of this happening? <laughs> the portrait thing. You know, when, the idea that it would have ended with Jericho joining him for a time is one thing. But this is the problem with Chris Jericho booking Chris Jericho. He doesn't know when to quit. And it became this whole thing. So Jericho's a moron, right? I mean, it's the only way you could take it based on this. Jericho's a fool. Don Callis was prepared for all of this. And now we get a match that no one wanted. For Wembley Stadium, like no one was demanding any of this. And that's what you get. I'll give one positive here. And again, truly bad work from Callis and Jericho. I mean, they're just pleasing themselves with this crap. This was the first blood on the show. And I was like, oh, you know what? It was done really poorly. This whole thing is rushed and stupid. Jericho's really bad in this role, but at least they're trying to get it over a serious. He gets the thing smashed over his head. He's bleeding. But there will be more blood. So now it's, um, well, because Take a Shit is over doing the other match, I think. So it's going to be Ostrich against Jericho one-on-one -on -one at Wembley, correct? Oh, is it? Or is it going to be Jericho and Sammy versus well, Takeshita and... Uh, and well, uh, you would have thought it would have been, but then later on when Jericho was in the back still with his pap smear not wiped off yet so that he could show that, he right. was mad at Ostrich, and I thought it was going to be a single match. Hey, I got to double check. I think that was what I originally read. And by the way, he was licking his own blood during that promo, which was really, it was just, a, what a weird well, that's, night. That's the, best, that's the best way to check to see if you're low on iron. So anyway, so another attack, another... Angle, another Os match announced for what? Osprey jumps in there, and I don't think he's easily recognizable to everyone. I mean, some of the people in the front may recognize him if they watch every week and watch New Japan, but he got in there and he did this move. I've only seen it one other time where Motown 25, the Jacksons reunite, the original Jackson 5. Yes. They're doing a medley of all their hits. And then after they're done with that, Michael goes, and Randy Jackson, who like joined at the end, like after Jermaine left, comes out there to no pop. But he makes like this, <laughs> but he makes like this move, like, you know, yeah. And Will Osprey got in there and puffed out his chest, and I don't think anyone was like, 
really yeah, going yeah. crazy. But you know, here's the thing. When they're doing these eight and ten person fucking just jump in and nobody knows what's going on and all the work looks like shit. If a fan was to take their shirt off and roll in and start doing something, would anybody be able to tell? Would you really notice? Think about it. You know, we're like midway through this show. Let me just stop you here real quick. Let's talk about the booking in AEW for a second. <laughs> what? How can we talk about something that doesn't exist? There are people who still think Tony Khan's a good booker. There are people who will say, look at the crowd at Wembley. How could you say he's a bad booker? There are people who will say, I like this kind of stuff. There's lots of people trying to justify things. He hired uh, Will Washington. Remember that guy Will, from... No, Will Wheaton. Yeah, the guy said he'd been in wrestling media for 18 years. No one had heard of him until just recently, like a very small group of people. <laughs> but he was auditioning for Tony. He got a job. Has anything improved? All these other people got powered up. They were going to do things. Has anything improved? It gets worse and worse. It's a drama factory. There's no management. It's poorly run. No one has any actionable power beyond Tony Khan. Look at the state of this fucking show. And this is the bad show. The good show has nothing but drama coming out of that, too, because of Tony. Ah. <sighs> Can you stop? Can we stop for one second and settle? I wish I wish we could stop for the rest of the day. Settle a debate from the Cult of Cornet Facebook group. Is it ha with an H or ha with a C? There are people no. who somehow think you have a C in it. No, it's ha. As in he, ha. H-A-W? Yes. There you go. Everybody knows that. All righty. Anyway, so continuing on with whatever the fuck it is that we're watching here. The next match, supposedly, allegedly, was, I guess, going to be Darby Allen and Nick Wayne against Bishop Khan and Tia Leone, who are part of the moguls, the, the embassy, whatever they're calling Nana's group this week. And it, here comes Darby and Nick, and there comes Bishop Khan and Tia Leone and jump them in the aisleway. And as boom, 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 as soon as the bell rings to start the match, music starts playing. And here comes Swerve and A.R. Fox to come and watch the match that is still taking place on the floor because it's just started. <laughs> and the baby faces are fighting back, and they just go to break. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? And when they come back within a couple minutes, the baby faces win. There was nothing to this. But then they dare Fox and Swerve to come in and fight them in their skateboard because they got the skateboard in the ring. But Sting pops up on the screen and says he's making movies now. And he announces a coffin match at Wembley Stadium. For, I don't know who all's in it, because and but he he's got Nana, he's kidnapped Nana and he's got Nana next to him, and Nana's all nervous. But then he like goes boo at Nana and scares him, and Nana runs off, and the heels run to the back to go find wherever Nana is, and we've got a coffin match at Wembley Stadium with with I guess 
staying in Darby Allen and is Nick Wayne involved? And are they against Swerve and AR Fox? But is there somebody else? What's going on there? I can't explain any of this. First of all, Darby's feuding with Christian Cage on Collision. But over here, he's feuding with Swerve. And there's these other guys. Nana was kidnapped. For some reason, the heels dropped everything to go save Nana. I thought that was very nice of them. Very nice heels. But how did they know where to run to? Well, he has to be somewhere in the back. Either that or outside a hospital somewhere. But I run to you. I run to you. But I don't know where that you've been kidnapped to. But I'll run to you. What about Sting's acting here? What was he basically saying? I'm going to make a film with Nana? Is he going to make a porno with Nana? I don't know. He was trying to be like, was it a little Jack Nicholson Joker-ish? Um... It's showtime. You know, and, and the, uh, yeah, but uh, I don't know. Everybody was just standing around and who is in the match. I, you know, I'm sure the announcers will tell us, but I don't listen to sock face because you can't understand him. So what the fuck? But yeah, another Wembley match where everybody just went down to the ring, fought for a little while. Somebody popped up on the screen and they ran off. So, so far we've had. Assault during an interview. We've had kidnapping. <laughs> it's been multi- Is Vince Russo booking dynamite? You know, that's what... I had a nice night's sleep last night because we got good news about Harley Quinn's being perkier and healthier. And I certainly wasn't going to ruin my night by watching this, so I got up early this morning and I was going to watch the show, but I got on Twitter first and I saw everybody going, you know, what the fuck was that? And, you know, had to, out of morbid curiosity, you know, go through this fucking thing. But I, it, there, we, if you believe folks that were making this shit up and that all these things didn't really happen, stay tuned because we're only almost an hour in. It's all going to happen over again a couple of different times. So... MJF and Adam Cole are training for their pre-show match with Ozzy Oldham for the Ring of Honor World Tag Team title. And since they're from Australia, they want to scout them out, so they go to the Outback Steakhouse to do more movie buddy comedy or buddy movie comedy or whatever the fuck kind of comedy this is that they're doing. And... After that, they go to they got the Crocodile Dundee one and two DVDs, and MJF is watching kangaroos fighting on his phone, and he develops the kangaroo kick, and then they see an inflatable crocodile, and there's some fucking random guy I don't know who the fuck he was that was standing next to a kiddie pool with the inflatable crocodile and they double clotheslined the guy into the kiddie pool and then got sent to tony khan's office where with the door closed we are led to believe that tony khan actually yelled at somebody and cussed him out for doing something wrong which is the fakest most preposterous thing it's ever been on his program and then MJF plugged Hattie B's chicken, which is the best hot chicken in Nashville. It's the best chicken you've ever had in your life. But he said he had to go take a shit. Apparently, you got the what the cluck instead of just the regular spicy. This was my favorite part, though, right after MJF left. 
I mean, what happened? I don't even remember what happened after him. I just, I just wrote, I know it's drawing ratings, but he's MJF has become fake as the rest of these fucking guys. What was the out? Roddy strong at the end, uh, kicked the tire of the car. Oh, that's right. He came up he and hurt kicked, his foot. Yeah. And then uh, Matt Taven briefly made an appearance in the background, but then it cut to commercial. That's right. Roddy's still mad that Adam is friends with Max, so he kicked the tire on Max's car and hurt his foot. That's my, can I be honest with you? That's my favorite thing about this whole thing. It's so ridiculous. Roddy Strong's new character of being the hurt friend with the neck brace. Now he's hurt his foot. He's like you as a manager. Everything he kicks, he hurts his foot. And then Taven and Bennett are just like the mute friends that are following him around for an undefined reason there's a reason why the manager was the one that did all the funny stuff so that the people would believe that the wrestlers were actually going to be serious and have a good fight instead of so now we've got mjf and adam cole in the ring at the nine o'clock hour for a promo they've ruined mjf for me I, I have to say it. I'm no longer, after these buddy clips of the, the fucking phony, silly comedy movie clips that they've done that are obviously fake and not even, they're not even, these are guys are good enough performers if you did something like this, as we talked about with one camera, so it wouldn't look fake and set up and rehearsed and you might could get away with it, but I'm totally disinterested now. And I know everybody loves it because their audience for this fake, silly, phony, childish program is now the one that they've created, small as it may be, that likes fake, silly, phony, cosplaying, childish wrestling. And they're going to put everybody on this Wednesday night show in this shit and make them look like a bunch of fucking morons. So they did the, the promo and MJF got him to chant kangaroo kick. I think he could get him to chant. Fuck my mother. Fuck my mother. But it's all, they're all working with them. There's no, there's no real heat here. There's no real anticipation. It's like, Ooh, they're really performing this stuff great. I can't wait to see what they'll say next. What in the world have they come up with to do next? They're all working together. Uh, anyway, <laughs> the only reason I like watching Adam Cole and MJF now talking in the ring is because it, it prevents me from having to watch anything else on this show. And this was long, and this was the long story of how MJF booked or got booked by Cody for the first all-in. And finally, the summation was it means a lot to MJF to face his best friend at all-in, but the only thing that means everything to him is the belt, so he's not going to lay down in Wembley. And both of them started teasing they were going to get frisky with each other and then they were jumped by ozzy oldham and then turned around and beat them up and then adam cole was standing behind mjf teasing that he was going for the super kick but when mjf turned around he didn't and then they hugged remember that spot for later 
Brian, I know they're wonderful promos. I know the people like it. I'm sorry. This is, it's gone far enough that I'm not really interested in seeing MJF anymore. It's fake. Well, I've typically liked the promos in the ring or in the arena more than the segments. The Yes. And I didn't like this one. I thought the segment in the ring was good. I thought it went too long. But I thought overall it was good. I don't think Aussie Open have been established enough that the people even know who they were. You know, where was Roddy and Taven and Bennett? Oh, they were in the back watching. They showed that, actually. They yeah, showed them yeah. sitting in the back watching the monitor. I mean, I'll say this was the best thing on this show. Yeah, well, that, yeah, again, the, the nicest guy in prison, you know, uh, conundrum. I'll agree with that. It was the best thing on this show. It's a company-wide problem right now. And this is MJF's booking right now. Hopefully it leads somewhere. Something with some edge. Right now is his mid-90s WWE moment, maybe. I don't know. I mean, you know, at some point, if you're around all this stuff nonstop, it has to be infectious. He, for, a, for three years, for three years, he was the guy that you could count on that no matter what else was going on, his matches were going to be good when he had them, and his promos were going to be good, and you were going to believe them. And you believed in him. And I mean, even if it turns out that it's a plot all along, he's going along with phony bullshit that's obviously phony bullshit that wouldn't have anything to do with a plot against Adam Cole or anybody else. It's just silliness. And he's the world champion. They could have done this in a way that didn't make it look like everybody, including the camera crew, was cooperating to put this together. If they wanted to have Adam Cole and MJF have a tenuous friendship, is all I'm saying. <sighs> there was more. There was. Jericho was in the back mad at Ostrich. I still think he said that it was a goddamn single match, but... He was, he was licking his blood. Has, he was licking has, his blood. During well, the take a shit's in the six-man, right? What six-man? Twinkle Toes and Hangnail and Adushi against Don Fallis's family. Against Bullet Club Gold? And Takeshita? Well, but but oh, Shit oh. was in the, the, the attack also. Oh, so I guess it is just Osprey against Jericho. Yeah. Boy, that's going to be a real test for Osprey. It's going to be a real test for my patience. Anyway, the big one was up next. Um... That everybody was talking about, not L.A. Knight, but the Texas Chainsaw Massacre match. Apparently now Warner Brothers has remade a classic film, and they'll probably ruin that too. No, it's for a video game, I think. What? I thought it was for I a thought... video game. Well, God damn it, then that's even worse. I thought they'd remade the movie because they had Texas Chainsaw Massacre on the barricades and texas chainsaw massacre on the fucking ring mat and texas chainsaw i thought they'd remade the movie which would be like i i thought it would be a shitty remake of a great movie like all the shit that rob zombie did to all the classic horror movies but this is just a so they're just a video game they're selling shit to children 
By having a Texas Chainsaw Massacre death match. I wouldn't say they're selling it to children. This isn't a children's game. And remember, children aren't really the primary audience, really, with video games. Oh, Christ. But that's what I this forgot. is promoting. I forgot many grown adults don't have enough fucking time these days, uh, or have too much time on their hands, don't have enough to do. If they're sitting around playing fucking video games. Do you think it did a good job of selling the game, or did it do a good job of making you want to cut your TV in half with a chainsaw? It did a good job of making people say what the fuck, according to your poll on the internet. It, this was... Uh, remember what, it was like, it was almost as bad, but this, actually, this is kind of worse, because it was with less talent, less name talent, and went on longer and was more phony than when the zombies ate people on the WWE program. What were they promoting at that point when the zombies ate everybody? The stock buyback? I don't know. Oh, man. He had a... <laughs> Next thing Vince wanted to do to a paralegal. I don't know. So it's Jeff Hardy versus Jeff Jarrett. And I guess the reason they thought that Jeff... Jer Jeff Hardy could do this was because they didn't actually have to have a match and get in the ring. And there was so many other people involved, but good Lord, boy, howdy. They gave Jeff an entrance into the arena and he acknowledged the people and then went back to the breezeway where they had red lighting set up and all kinds of, you know, horror implements on the wall of, leg shackles and impressive knives and things like in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house, except they were just hanging on the wall and they didn't really use them. And Jeff Jarrett attacked Jeff Hardy, and immediately Karen was running in and jumping on his back. And then they're having a fight in the hallway of the arena with red lighting, sort of like where Hangnail was with goddamn with the ambulance. And here comes Zippy, the giant pinhead in, but he's wearing Plowboy Frazier's overalls. No, he looked like Little John here. Silo Sam. You know what? You're right. He was dressed like him, and he looked like him. And if, and his, his little tiny head is about the same size as that giant goiter that Little John had on his side that the overalls covered up. Did I ever tell you about that? <laughs> you, every time no, it, you bring it, him up, you bring it up. <laughs> it looked like a half of a football with fucking clamp marks on it. And we used to rib Bobby that if we do the sh the spot where they the baby faces would shoot the heels into the big giant and they'd take a bump off of him. And we said, Bobby, if you hit him on that side, that's going to bust and all that fucking fluid's going to come out all over you. And he'd go in the bathroom and throw up over that. Well, coincidentally anyway, enough, that was a reaction many people had to this match. Yes, yeah, so then here came Matt Hardy and the other page, and somebody there was dressed like Too Cold Scorpio. <laughs> and they jumped on... Like Zip Flash Funk, the Flash Funk version of Scorpio. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And they jumped on Zippy, and then they dumped a bucket of fake blood all over Jeff and Karen Jarrett so that they were covered in what looked like blood, like the Carrie movie. And they staggered down. They were going behind the bleachers in the back of the arena, I guess, because it was very tight. And they just, they just went to break. 
at that point, and you couldn't tell what was going on. This was shot so closely. It was so crowded. There were people running in and out. It was dark and oddly lit. Just a mess. And they come back from the break, and now Jay Lethal is out there, and it was badly lit fake fighting. And then they all fought out onto the stage. There was Sanjay. We finally noticed him. And when they finally get out to the stage, I guess the people had been watching this on the screen. I'm surprised they didn't set the seats on fire, having to sit there and watch this bullshit. And finally, everybody gets in the ring, and Jeff Hardy gets a kendo stick and starts hitting people, and there's tables propped up in the ring. And now four of the baby faces got Jeff Jarrett in the middle of the ring and we're beating him up four on one. They're the baby faces. He's the heel. And then the other heels came in and grabbed the other baby faces and Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> Bless him. I'm off of Jeff. Now he could have said, no, he could have said, I've got I flunked my COVID test. He could have said, my God, Karen's about to give birth to a 10 pound flaming porcupine. We can't make the show. He didn't have to be involved in this. But Jeff lays on one of the tables forever so that Jeff Hardy can swanton him through it and the people get to see Jeff Hardy do a swanton. And, of course, Jeff Hardy lands flat on top of Jeff because he all the shit that he can't physically do anymore and tries anyway, to me, looks dangerous for the other fucking guy, Jeff Hardy. And I... <laughs> I wouldn't lay there under anything because he has to land on you to cushion the blow or he'll fracture his fucking skeleton. So then everybody did moves in the debris-filled ring and Jeff got his guitar. And that, I think, was the only thing that got the people in Nashville to cheer. I don't know because of whether it was Jeff with a guitar or just they saw something familiar. But then Jeff Hardy got it away from him and broke the guitar over Jeff's head. The other Jeff. Double Jeff. And then out came some idiot dressed like a, an emaciated, great value leather face. And he's swinging a chainsaw, a green chainsaw that looked brand, not an old, rusted, fucking bloody chain, but a green chainsaw that looked like it, it was Fisher Price. And they played the chainsaw sound over the public address system. He was just swinging a goddamn dud. It wasn't running. Did you notice that? You know, I didn't look closely at the chainsaw, <laughs> so I didn't notice that. They were playing the chainsaw. Go, I double dog dare anybody go back and listen to it and watch the video. They were playing the chainsaw sound over the PA system. The chainsaw wasn't going. And I know what somebody's going to say, Cornette, you want to trust any of these fucking lunatics with a real chainsaw? No. But if you remember a guy named Chainsaw Charlie, Terry Funk knew how to work fucking chainsaw. You take the goddamn chain off. And nobody can tell if you're ripping it. That's why Terry's smoked and sputtered and fucking made the noises and he could rev it up. He was running a chainsaw. There wasn't a chain on it. Fucking morons. So then Leatherface went down to the ring and chased Karen, who was doing the 
horror movie falling and stumbling and then he was waving the chainsaw at her and then she'd get up and run a little more and they were right, they fought off they chainsawed off and then jay lethal came in the ring and hit jeff hardy over the head with a paul bunyan swing with what was purported to be a fucking hammer and the way he hit him and the way that his head didn't explode you could tell it was a fake fucking hammer Stop. Yes. Hammer time. Oh, God damn you. <laughs> Fake hammer time. <laughs> I thought he would stop. I was like, yes, what, what, what's happened? Have we broken up as the connection? <laughs> well, it was hammer time and it was certainly, uh, are you hammering the desk? Yes, I am. I'm thinking, please hammer. Don't hurt him. Don't worry. This fake hammer wouldn't hurt anybody. Yeah. So then Zippy the giant pinhead choke slam Jeff Hardy and put Jeff Jarrett on top of him and Jeff won one, two, three. So the heel defeated one of the biggest baby faces in the history of the WWE. Of course, that's in the past. In a completely night this wasn't even a garbage wrestling match. It was a parody of it was Saturday Night Live. And one would assume that there wouldn't be a rematch from a Texas Chainsaw Massacre death match because after you've gone through the Texas Chainsaw Massacre death match, Brian, I mean, how could you top that? Two out of three falls? So this is one of the fakest, most embarrassing things that's ever been on any wrestling program's television. I'm embarrassed that Jeff Jarrett was involved, that he apparently needs this this badly now. Yeah, Jeff, goddamn. <laughs> he started promotions. He's fucking been in the business for 1986, 37 years. But he needs a job badly enough to willingly be involved in this. And there was one legitimate talent in this entire fiasco, Jay Lethal, and think of the things he could be doing and the matches he could be having in this company, and he's as hidden as Sanjay Dutt in just one of the merry band of pranksters. Again, I, I can believe everybody else in this thought that this was a great thing to do except for Jeff Jarrett, and I know Jay Lethal doesn't knows that it's garbage but he has no other choice and that's what happened there <sighs> i'd like to call me a culpa uh, matt hardy was right he's still doing great work i was wrong <laughs> i was clearly wrong he was a big part of this big match that will be remembered for years to come he wasn't even getting to fuck the dog. He just had to hold its head. He was a... He couldn't even get to the dog. There were two people in front of him every time yes. he tried to reach for the dog. The line to the dog was too long. He was a peripheral player in a dog fucking. He couldn't even star in a dog fucking. Well, I couldn't have said it better than that. And with Jeff Jarrett, this was always my fear. Like, he would come into AEW and everything would become TNA. And... They this is they, worse than anything TNA ever had. Yeah, That's going to be my poor point. TNA. That's going to be my point. Whatever restraints there were in TNA, 
under Jeff and Russo. He he was not piss. He was not pissing. He was not pitching any of this shit. Even in TNA, I sat in the meetings. No, the other guy, anything that approached this was the other guy, but even the other guy. Were they I don't supplied? Think ever did this. Were they supplied with that bullshit mask for Leatherface? Well, that's another thing. He lo- it didn't even look, it looked like somebody went to fucking Walgreens and got a leather fat leather mask face, leather face mask. It wasn't even he didn't even look intimidating. His clothes were clean. There was no blood, no innards or bowel matter or anything on the fucking apron. Which one of the agents said, I'm okay with going out there and throwing that chainsaw around a little bit? That, that The physique was still awfully dumpy for anybody that would have been a wrestler. Maybe Kingston? So, I mean, that's the question. You think they were supplied with a bullshit Leatherface from Discovery? Central Leatherface casting? There are wrestlers uh, out there. I mean, Tony Myers and various other people who have been, or still are, a version of Leatherface. You could have used one of them. Where did they find this person? I don't I don't know that anybody that's actually still trying to be in the wrestling business would have asked to be involved in this thing. <laughs> so they probably had to get a fake leather face. That's why his face was was rubber instead of leather. It was cheap. And if I could be serious for a moment, I'm glad that Jeff Jarrett went over because what a tribute to Nashville wrestling. Uh it would be <laughs> it would be a disgrace if he had lost on this night of oh, all nights. His grandmother would uh, she would have given him the grip. If you had sat Christine Jarrett down and just and told her, watch this, this is what they're doing to wrestling now. 25 years after she passed away, she she wouldn't have watched it. She would have turned away from it. She it would have made her not just mad, but disgusted and probably depressed that this is what is being passed off under the name professional wrestling these days that she spent her life in and that her grandson was involved center stage. I think maybe may have been more than she could take. And she would have gone back there and give him that grip thumb on the fucking right jaw and the fingers on the left jaw and squeezed him until he was puckered up like a goddamn kiss fish and told him never to do anything like that again if he wanted to be a part of her family. I firmly believe that that is what would have taken place. But well, we had another match coming well, up. Okay. Go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say that match was certainly a bunch of crap. And after something like that, you may want to do something to fix your life up, maybe something to cheer you up, something like a box of awesome. You know, I was afraid you were going there by the time you got there halfway because there really is, there is no transition from a house of horrors to a box of awesome from being, from sitting down at the dinner table with Leatherface and his entire disgusting family to sitting down at the dinner table with your lovely family and opening up a box of awesome gifts that you have ordered for yourself or they have ordered for you. There's no comparison. There's no transition. And that's why Brian Last flummoxed the whole thing up, because there's no transition. You got to go straight to the box of awesomeness. And that's exactly what you're going to get. Folks, from our friends at Bespoke Post, the box of awesome contains everything that you want 
to satisfy your needs and desires of a variety of your personal interest. And they release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. All you've got to do is go to boxofawesome.com and you take their little quiz and they'll ask several pertinent questions about what your interests are, your hobbies, your likes and dislikes, what kind of things that you might enjoy if it were sent to you. For example, you know, what kind of wine you drink or what kind of foods you eat or what kind of trips you take or what kind of things you collect or what kind of sex toys you use, anything like that. Not that. Not that specific thing, but things like that. Specifically not anything like that, to use your exact words. Well, those are certainly several words that I used. But when you take that quiz, your answers are going to help them pick the right box of awesome for you. And then the awesome thing about it is that 90% of everything that comes in your box of awesome is from a small up-and-coming brand that needs your support. You're supporting small businesses and so are our friends at Bespoke Post with Box of Awesome. It's free to sign up. You can skip a month. You can cancel any time you want. As a matter of fact, if you tell them, they'll cancel everything. You can tell Box of Awesome, hey, just cancel everything. You won't get mail anymore. You won't nope. get a milk delivery. They that's will not, cancel all yours. They're very good about that. That's not the way it works. There's no power of attorney over your mail that you'll be giving anyone. Box of Awesome is only concerned with delivering you fine products. Hey, Jim, guess what? I got one right here they just sent to me. You got your new box? I'm still waiting on my box. My delivery mine. of box comes later than your box. This Damascus folder is made of 1095 Damascus steel. Forged from hundreds of layers of high carbon metal. Go ahead. Open it. Look at the waves. Feel that texture. Maybe even grab the handle and slice off the corner of this card. See how easy it glides through? The thing is sharp. And there's more notes here about this wonderful new knife I have. Did Mr. Peterman write that? Jay Peterman? Yes, either that or Elaine, or possibly the uh, assistant that she promoted up because she was scared of him. But I understand the Damascus steel knife is made by Buck and Bear Knives, located in Pennsylvania. Uh, is did that, you know that? I did not know that. It's not on this card here. Where, well, you, where are you on, seeing that? It's on my copy, I'll tell you what. But <laughs> And here's the thing, folks. If, if <laughs> Gather the family around. Open your box of awesome, grab that knife out, and start waving it around. Your family will do whatever you want them to do. They will be Wave a, the knife around to be show very them. cooperative. They will be cooperative because they'll be watching and looking at this fine knife and wanting to see you use it maybe to prepare some food or something else. Let's talk about the positives. And it's nothing but positives. Awesome positives with box awesome, of awesome. Awesome positive things. That's right. And it doesn't have to be knives. It could be guns or hand grenades. No, they don't have guns and hand grenades. That's true. That's not a even small, legal. Well, small businesses don't manufacture uh, hand grenades or guns anymore. What? It's all conglomerates now. They've taken it over. So the small businesses, they're sticking to things like you, you might get a nice shiv. No, you're not going to get a shiv. Let me give another example. I've got this nice knife they sent me previously. They sent me the ingredients to grow my own pizza. I could grow the tomatoes, I could grow the basil, I can make the tomato sauce, I can make the bread, all the ingredients I need. You've always seen like, seemed like a grow-your-own guy. But they've got other things I've mentioned besides weapons. You're just very interested in, in weapons. 
And what, and what does that have to do got, with rowing? They've got hot sauces. What does they've that got, have to do with weapons? What are you? They've talking got the about? American barbecue rub in the carnivore <laughs> box from the Great American Spice Company over in Rockford, Michigan. <laughs> They've got a variety, the Weekender bag that they sent Stace is just lovely. And, of course, we got our Julep Cup set. That's, of course, great for derby time here in the Derby City. But regardless, folks, whatever you want in your box of awesome is up to you. And I promise you, even if you're in an unhappy marriage, you can have one awesome box a month in your own home. If you go to boxofawesome.com right now, and enter the code DRIVE, you're going to get 20% off your first monthly box. Boxofawesome.com, enter the code DRIVE at checkout, and get 20% off your first monthly box. Once again, 20% off using the code DRIVE at checkout. Whatever the awesomeness is that you want, you're going to get 20% off of it. Each box is valued at around $70, but you only pay a fraction of that, even before... They take the 20% off. So actually, you're almost getting this for free. If I were you, I'd order several. That's Wouldn't right. you, Brian? I think that's a good idea. I enjoy the box of awesome you can, I get. You can open them all up while you're waiting for that fucking basil to grow so you can make your own pizza. Well, maybe you could order yourself you know, one teach, and order some as gifts for other people. Buy a man a pizza he'll eat for a day, but teach a man to grow his own pizza and he'll be highly fucking pissed off you didn't just buy him a pizza. Well, we're talking about Box of Awesome. What's the promo code, Jim? No, the promo code is not Jim. The promo code is DRIVE at checkout. No, I was asking you, what's the promo code, Jim? Ah, what's the frequency, Kenneth? Boxofawesome.com. Enter the code DRIVE at checkout for 20% off. Well, once again, Jim, I reiterate, I love my Box of Awesome. I love my new knife here. and Hey, I'll tell you what, you love that knife enough that I'm afraid to say anything about bad about your Box of Awesome. Well, thank you very much. That's uh, how it works here. But speaking of knives, let's cut through more of AEW Dynamite because what a banner edition it was this week. Well, and again, you know, you go back to the, to the show, we finally got a match in the ring. Talking about Box of Awesome, we got Dr. Britt Baker versus The Bunny. You know, I, <laughs> I haven't seen the bunny wrestle, but I have seen her box. But in this case, awful, awful. They, they went one minute to the break. And when they came back from the break, I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I was low on time. This show was grating on my patience. And the bunny looks like a, a you know, a baby deer on ice. And. You know, did I miss anything? Did, who who got jumped after the match and beat up and who bled in this one? You know, I didn't pay that close of attention because it was really bad. Uh, Britt won. She'll now be in this big four-way match at Wembley Stadium to uh, be one of the, uh, to, to do or get. <laughs> Whatever it's for, she's in the match. I don't remember what the stipulation or what title or... or whatever it is. There's four women and it's every man for himself. Yeah, the bunny does a lot of like, you know, sticky faces always, and I can't take the her sticky seriously. Babe, the bunny has a sticky face. A sticky, not not sticky, sticky, sticky. It's sticky. Like it's just like it's an it's a hammy. Like she's hamming it up. Oh, I thought you meant she had sticky ham on her face. Then after a while, there <laughs> maybe it was Shecky Green. <laughs> I don't. Know I what. don't know what. Why you're uh, trying to accuse the bunny of having. I wasn't accusing. What is she, a a Dunkin' Donut? She's been glazed? That's not what I was saying at all. You are 
I don't know where you're at. But anyway, you didn't miss anything. And I have a feeling I can't wait to see the ratings. I'm going to say that again this week. Because there's, I don't know how anyone, the audience was silent during this. It would be inexplicable to me if this show kept the viewers it started with. I'll just say that. Inexplicable. So next up, the acclaimed. They're the top of the chain. They did their entrance and they did their rap and their opponents to job fellows were in the ring and suddenly the lights went out and they were out for a long time and the announcers just didn't even seem concerned. Oh, this, this, this is happening again. And then the lights come on and guess what? The house of black is still allowed to teleport on Wednesdays. Actually, that would have been that would have been better if they'd have done that because when they turned the lights out, they just fucking it was quiet and it was black and people didn't care. So they have when they turn the lights on, there's the house of black. They're standing in the ring. The job guys are gone completely. Nothing even made any noise. So what did they do with these people? Did they teleport them back to the House of Black dimension? Did they pay them off quickly and the deal only took 10 seconds to consummate and they ran away? Or did they just jump down and hide under the ring because it was all set up and everything's fake? One wonders. So they're the House of Black on Saturdays and they're the House of Black on Wednesdays. And, of course, as former tag team champions and as one of the most popular babyface teams in the company, the the acclaimed turn around, try to swing at these guys, and immediately get shut down. Not one of the heels takes a bump or even takes a shot. They just block the fucking punches and fuck you and shut them down. And beat them up. And got juice on Max Caster. And stole Billy Gunn's boots. So the acclaimed also stood there in the same position with their backs turned to the opponents they thought were in the ring the entire time the lights were out. And when the lights came on, then they turned around and saw that all was not as they thought it was. And then they were completely ineffectual in doing anything about it and didn't land a blow and got their shit kicked in and left lane. Wonderful job of, and, and their, their uh, honorary father's property stolen. Wonderful job of babyface fire and passion and capability from the acclaimed. Your thoughts, Brian? An interesting twist in the House of Black. We knew they were somewhat evil and dark. Uh, Brody King's rather well-dressed, I have to say. For Yeah, he went his... from looking like a panda bear to looking like he just stepped off the top of a wedding cake. It's like a little boy going to a funeral in 1910. Like, <laughs> it's like a weird look. But, <laughs> you know, they're out there, and they stole the boots. And in their previous feud, they stole the mask. They're going after everyone's clothing. What's that about? They're clothing thieves. 
That was the previous feud they were in. They stole the guy's mask to go right from that to stealing the boots. They just keep stealing things. 30 years ago, the wrestling rosters were filled with panty droppers. Now they're filled with clothing thieves. What would they go, so, a- what would they go after next? Darby's jacket? I don't, I don't think he'd care about that. He's not into material possessions. They need to lay off his skateboard, though. What about if somebody set fire to Darby's skateboard and shoved it down the entrance ramp and there it came, it'd be, instead of the burning dumpster, it'd be the burning skateboard coming down the entrance ramp just to signify their product. That's interesting, though. The whole Darby thing, he's not interested in material things. I bet you if you ripped up his jacket, he'd be upset or wrecked his skateboard, right? I get, you know, I think the boy has misplaced priorities because I would have been more concerned when I was sleeping in my fucking car about selling that skateboard to get enough money to go to the fucking Super 8. That's just me. This whole show was a fucking two-hour angle that never ended. (laughs) It was just people were coming out under the pretense of having a wrestling match so that more people could jump them and beat them up and bust them open and or turn on them and or whatever the fuck, and then everybody screams, Wembley! Now, to those who may argue that we're being extreme in our review, that Tony, as the promoter going into what may be the biggest crowd outside of North Korea in wrestling history, he's hotshotting. That this is just his bizarre <laughs> way of hotshotting. Any merit to that? Yes! Yes! There's all kinds of merit to that, because he's already almost filled the place up. He got another gift. That's, that's the most galling thing about this. It's all as a result of a human, real-life Richie Rich getting gifts. He got a gift of $100 million from his father. They've admitted that now. The, the investment was $100 million. And they've also admitted they ain't made it back yet. He got $100 million from his father because he's his son. Don't make it back in the video game. He got a national cable outlet because they own a pro football team and they did business with TBS and TNT. He got the Wembley Stadium deal because it's a happening. It's the same thing, only on a much bigger scale than the first all-in. We're mad at the biggest company. They're boring and they don't do what we like. So we're going to support these ragamuffins over here. And it's a giant crowdfunding deal. And the reason why Wembley is eight times as big as the first All-In was is because Wembley and England, the UK, gets many more than eight times less major wrestling shows than the United States. But it's the same principle. They want to be there. It's a happening. It's a fuck you to Vince and the evil empire. We're going to support this, and it's ours now. We get Wembley, United Kingdom. We get the show. He keeps getting these gifts. I won't say it's a gift that a lot of these guys work for him because he's paying them more money than they've ever made in their lives, and in many cases, more money than any of these people would ever have made because nobody in their right minds would pay them this much. So that's not a gift, but he's got talent. So he got talent. And he got a gift of Wembley Stadium. He got a gift of television. He got a gift from his father to start this whole thing. And he refuses to goddamn take charge of it or put people in charge of it 
that know what the fuck they're doing and can produce a cohesive fucking television show instead of a goddamn raving mess. And we're not finished with the mess. You know, imagine when he first talked to you, if he said, and no one will write my television but me, and no one will run my locker room. And he just stopped there. Because <laughs> that's really <laughs> what it is, right? I mean, he, he wants to be in charge, but he, he doesn't want to be in charge. He didn't really have to say that. As soon as he said, nobody's going to write my television except me, and I heard who is business partners were going to be, I knew that nobody was going to be running the locker room. So, and four years later, here we are. And no, nobody has done either. Whose fault will it be next? It was you because you were angry and upset. Then it was Punk. And he's been like the biggest enemy they've had yet. Who's it going to be next to blame instead of looking at themselves? Well, maybe it's going to be whoever shot the entrance of the gun boys. Did you notice this? What? The gun, the gun boys have a new entrance where they're under a spotlight on the stage and they're doing a pose and the, the camera does the 360 around them, the 360 spin around them. Right. And they got the smoke machine going. So they, they look great. But then when the camera comes to a stop, as they're looking past the guns, you see, Maddie of the Buckaroos waiting for the appropriate cue to super kick him. And then he looks over at his fucking idiot dimwit brother who's off camera because of the fog and gives <laughs> him a nod. And then they come and they super kick the goddamn gun boys. Classic and, bucks. And so they start the match on the goddamn stage. They've only got 12 minutes left on the air. I didn't know they were going to do an overrun, and apparently neither does the network until they run out of time and call on their dedicated line that we've mentioned before that you have when you're doing a live television program and say, can we please have some more time? We're not going to be done in time because they can't manage their program. Have you noticed that when you DVR NXT or when Raw has a, an overrun, you get everything because it's scheduled. But on this, no, it's just they can't manage their time. And they had 12 minutes left on the air. They could have had a nice tag team match with the Buckaroos and the Gun Boys. But it's not the, the Maddie and Nikki want to make sure they get to do all their stuff. So they not only had to jump start it on the stage and then dive off the stage and fight in the arena before the match started. But then. Once the corpse referee rang the bell, they immediately go into a four-way. No tags. The referee standing there dumbfounded. The buckaroos doing the same flippy shit that they do in every single match you ever see them in. And so at that point, I said, well, I'm going to skip to the finish. I didn't know there was an overrun. So as I'm skipping to the finish, I get to fucking one minute left, and I'm thinking, shit, I better slow this down. And the Buckaroos had just won their match, but my DVR froze up and I would have had to zip all the way back through the show and I didn't care that much. I said, okay, the Buckaroos won. And then you tell me, oh no, there's an afterbirth. So I had to watch on YouTube the closing minutes of this fucking fiasco. After the Buckaroos win... The fucking bad guys jump them and they get more heat after. 
Until this time, the baby faces that come to save, like we've seen five times on this program in the last two hours, this time it's FTR. They play their music, and FTR comes down and runs off the gun boys and gin and juice. And then, Brian, you'll never guess what they did. It was revolutionary. It was something that's going to sell 20,000 more tickets to Wembley Stadium. As the buckaroos were standing there watching the heels run up the hill, FTR was behind them, teasing-like when they turned around. They were going to hit one of them with their finish, but when the bucks turned around and went, up, then FTR straightened back up like they didn't mean to do it and they weren't going to do that. That was incredible. I hadn't seen anything like that in, I would say, at that point, the previous... 45 fucking minutes since Adam Cole and MJF did the same goddamn spot the same goddamn way, pointed in the same goddamn direction. And that was that. Isn't this also similar to the way they first built up the tension way back with FTR and the Young Bucks where they came out, they didn't attack them, they would help them. Now, the way they first built up the tension between FTR and the Young Bucks was when the two little kids from Cucamonga kept running their fucking dick lickers about the two real men from North Carolina that were so much better than the buckaroos would ever be that they were fucking jealous. That's when the tension first started. Well, that's what I was trying to say, yes. Yeah. So I'm just looking back over my notes, and the only... God damn it. It's just a just schmaz, angle, fight, chaos, gimmicks, no DQ, anything goes. The the actual just one-on-one wrestling matches on this program were Britt Baker versus the Bunny and the company mascot against his friend, Wheeler Useless, and that was pretty much it. Everything else is just a fucking mess. Well, Jim, we've had a long show, but before we get out of here, speaking of everything in AEW being a mess, let's go back to Collision. Stories have now emerged, another situation. Apparently, Jack Perry and CM Punk (laughs) had some sort of disagreement over glass. Have you been keeping up with this story? I've I've seen a number of things reported on the internet and on Twitter. And I believe every bit of it because it sounds exactly like both individuals. Well, I guess the story is that Jack Perry in a backstage segment, either a promo or just some sort of attack, wanted to use real glass in a segment. Well, I don't think he's Moondog Maine. He wasn't going to eat a light bulb in a promo. It had to be (laughs) some kind of, sorry to be a cavalier with you there, my fine feathered friend. Uh, but it had to be some kind of attack or angle or something. And he, and there was obviously a dis- disagreement. Jungle Jack wanted to somehow use broken glass, real broken glass. And apparently, from the way I heard it, the agent of the match and or the medical staff and or other people said, we, we don't think you ought to do that. So it was brought to Punk to get his viewpoint, and he told the child, as you should do when you're trying to instruct and or discipline petulant children, 
He said to Jack Perry, we don't do that on Saturday nights. Which indicates to me that at least one person in this company is trying to do what they're supposed to be doing, which is do a professional television program in the manner and kind and genre that it is supposed to be, professional wrestling, and do it well and do it professionally and do it somewhat safely and not have all this childish outlaw garbage involved. And apparently the petulant child that was being disciplined, or in this case not disciplined, but being instructed that this is not the kind of thing that we do on the real wrestling program that this company produces, he got pissed off and was arguing about it. I think at that point they should have said, tell you what, you can use all the broken glass you want. You go out in the parking lot, break you a bunch of bottles, roll around in it, we don't care but you're not doing it on the television program because you're not important and we don't want this bullshit that you people do on Wednesday night fucking up our show. That's what I heard. Did, did I fill everybody in appropriately? Approximately, I believe. What does this say about just the overall problems? And we've always said they were going to be problems, but they usually were enough things on the other side of the pendulum to swing things a little bit the other way. There was a Cody Rhodes in the back, at least sometimes. But in terms of talent being given the ability to just do what they want in AEW. Well, it's going to continue probably on Wednesdays because that's where Tony Khan is fully in charge and he has no balls. And the rest of them have an indie mindset that they're never going to get out of. And that's, you know, why they're the state that they are. On Saturday, it appears that there are rules in place for what is and is not going to be done on a wrestling show. And that's refreshing and sorely needed. And again, you know, these, these fucking jack-offs these days, they think they're goddamn TV stars or they're entertainers or whatever. Okay, if you were a fucking Hollywood actor, Jack Perry, since your father was a Hollywood actor, when Luke Perry went and auditioned for a comedy. As part of the, the role, did he just go against the script and break into song, even if the comedy wasn't a musical? Or if he's auditioning for a part in a drama, does he start cracking jokes in the middle of the goddamn main dramatic scenes because he knows some funny jokes? Now answer. Well, again, I don't think that uh, you should use glass. I was going to ask you about instances with glass in wrestling. How careful do you have to be? Well, for one thing, most of these morons don't even know. They're trying to fucking slam each other through the windshields of cars and, and shit like that. And that, as Goldberg will tell you, that's a crapshoot every time. And you'll remember when Lawler got run over in the fucking parking lot by Eddie Gilbert. He had on long sleeves and he had on long pants. And he was able with his, even though it was a warm day outside, as some people remarked on, that's how he could cover up having some elbow pads on because you're not only taking a bump on concrete, but you're, you're risking, you know, some glass along the way. Goldberg trying to punch, did punch through that fucking car window and, and severed an artery and almost bled to death. 
I mean, broken glass, the only time glass was ever used in wrestling was the old bottle deal. Break a bottle over a guy's head. Some guys wanted the real bottle broken over their fucking head. Do you remember Cactus Jack in... Were you at that thing with Eddie Gilbert, the two out of three matches, Joel Goodhart show in no. Philly? Or was that before your time? That was before I was going to live events, uh, or at least independent events, but it was two out of three falls, but it was two out of three matches. It was three yeah. different stipulations. And they spread it out through the night, but at one point he had Eddie trying to break a real bottle over his head, and Eddie had to hit him three or four times. And I mean, everything else is exposed. I believe we've talked about it before, but it's not like they're smart enough to even know how to work with shit like this, but what you do is you bake the bottle a certain, at a certain temperature for a certain time, depends on the bottle. You got to play with them. And then you take it out with the tongs and you dip it in some cold water and it's going to, it's going to crack, but it's not going to fucking shatter. It's going to stay in. And then you put it carefully in the goddamn holder. And then it requires a little sleight of hand and make sure it doesn't fall apart during the swing before the impact and you break the bottle over the guy's head and it's still going to cut him because it's still real fucking broken glass. But that real broken glass can be found by the fans and they can say, God damn, that's glass. Whereas the fucking sugar bottles they use in the movies won't stand up scrutiny. And if the fans don't see the bottle close before it's broken, then they don't know that it was cracked to begin with. And you close your eyes and hope for the best that a piece of glass doesn't get stuck in your fucking skull, but it's probably not going to sever a fucking artery like punching through a car window. And for people rolling around on real broken glass or taking bumps through window panes and all this bullshit, well, you're the same to me as the fucking bank-addicted drug robber or the plumber or any other of these garbage fucking geeks that bite the heads off live chickens and take bumps through broken glass. You're a fucking moron, and you deserve what you get. Like old Grover. And if you're using fake glass and you're rolling around in it and you're not ripped open from asshole to appetite, then you're telling the people... That's fake glass. So just don't use the fucking broken glass, you fucking morons. Anyway. All right. Well, that was the uh, CM Punk Jack Perry glass issue. And, that's, and again, that's exactly, they, there needs to be a man with balls and commitment and authority to explain to these fucking children what kind of show they're going to do and what they're not going to do and what's tolerated on this program and what's not and what the rules and the guidelines are. And this is the first time that that's been done in AEW and that's what's leading to Saturday night being a watchable television program that a wrestling fan might enjoy instead of a fucking LSD-inspired mess that only the fans that want to laugh at wrestling and think it's all a big fucking joke can sit through. And they're not happy about it. They can get mad or get glad as far as I'm concerned. They need to do it on everything they fucking do. And maybe then something would be accomplished. And that's my thoughts. All right, well, those are your thoughts, and uh, there are other things happening, but we have gone a long time, and I don't want to end on a bad note so why don't we get out of here 
Yeah. But why don't we get a one song? Why don't we fight off? Fight off? We'll just fight off. I'll get my chainsaw. Ram, 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 ram. Now I got to go back and watch it. Now you're going to make me go back and watch it. I'm telling you, you want to bet some money? I'm telling you, they fucking piped the goddamn chainsaw music in over the PA. Where was that security guard that dropkicked Darby? Why didn't I got to take out Leatherfig? I ran yeah, the well, with a fuck, chainsaw. If he, could, if he can beat up wrestlers, he ought to be able to handle fucking horror movie goddamn co-stars. All right, well, here, Play us a song. Well, here's a song. This one... Here's my theme song submission, Second Time's the Charm. It's Manny, the 22-year-old admirer who's still not entirely sure how taxes work. You two are my online lifesavers, hey. rescuing me from the sea of craziness out there. Sounds like he's trying to set us up as unindicted co-conspirators in his tax case. I've been pondering again, how about we team up to conquer the digital realm? <laughs> oh, well, let me, let's see what uh, song he sent in. Here's Manny. Viewership and listenership and money that we're making. I still fucking wrestle with my conscience over watching these programs, much less the goddamn paltry 15 cents in Chinese money in a fucking cup on the street corner that he's getting. So I, I, I have a hard time having sympathy. Secondly, maybe now this is poetic justice. Because all those years, all of the real wrestling fans, as well as everybody Thank in the business, have to you. fucking be held down and watch his or shit. Thank you. Fuck you. And we Bye. know some of us were willing to pay Thank to you. not have to watch Bye. you. Bye. So now, Thank you. Thank you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Bye. Bye. Boom. Thank you. Fuck you. Bye. Boom. Thank you. Fuck, fuck you. Bye. Boom. Thank you. Fuck you. <laughs> There's not a lot of song to that, is there? <laughs> Manny, I want to accept your offer. Let's take over the digital realm. But I, with this I, playing I, in the background the whole time, it'll put everyone in a trance. I thought it was kind of building to to go somewhere, and then it it kept it stayed there. All right. Well, thank you, Manny. Right, thank uh, you, Manny. Let me uh, move this to uh, this folder here. Let's get another one. This one was sent to cornydrivethru at gmail.com from Dean, Columbia, South Carolina, home of the Township Auditorium. Been there many times. My name is Dean, and I have crafted an original score for you inspired by the Midnight Express intro music. Oh. Let's go to this right now. more like it would have been a soundtrack for some of the things that happened in a certain room in the basement of the township auditorium from time to time on wrestling nights. Especially when they forgot to lock the door that led to the concession stand. Come on, you don't think that'd be a good theme song for the show?
Uh, well, it's it's uh, Giorgio Moroder has nothing to worry about. Let's put it that way. Well, once again, thank you, Dean. For thank you, me. Dean. Let's get one more. Let's try to end on a upbeat, <laughs> upbeat note. Uh, this is upbeat note. Is that a pun? Uh, I guess so. So far today, it is. This one is from Carrie and Nancy in the X Bombers, a dirty and delightful blues and garage rock duo from Illinois. We work the territory of the Midwest playing 80 dates a year. So let's check them out. Here they are. At the midnight and the rock and roll, he's in a fight for wrestling soul, using racket and some mind control. He's Jim Cornette! Keys to the future, held by the past, and with tag team partner Brian Last, he sends this message out by podcast. He's Jim Cornette. Well, he's never fake or phony. He never backs down from a fight. He never wins the pony, cause his mama raised him right. It's time. Topping that today. Boy, how do, what's their names again? They are, let me pull this up. This is Carrie and Nancy from the X-Bombers. Holy mackerel. That way we got a contender there. We like you said, we're not topping that today, but we got to keep that one in the archives and refer back to it. Good job, girls. And well, I think it's a, a girl and a guy, uh, based on the oh, picture. Oh, I there. well, can we have <laughs> Carrie and Nancy? It sounds like Nancy <laughs> Kerrigan and I don't know. Who I'm, I'm guessing Carrie the is the guy. I'm guessing Carrie is the guy. Well, Carrie was a girl in the movie. Look, the truth is, I don't know what's going on. I just want to say they did a great Carry song. Carry on. Carry on. What are you saying? Carry on with the show? Or you just... I'm saying carry on with whatever the well, fuck Once again, doing. the X-Bombers uh, go to see them live. They play the Midwest. Demand this song. Yes. But until then, the drive-thru is closed. Where's my... While I'm getting this... Hold on here. Let me let me play you a tune. Yeah, there you go. Here we go. All right, I'm on a run with very peaceful endings to this show, and that's a nice thing to have. Hear more on the Jim Cornette experience, and at this point, every few days, there's something coming out. Wherever you find your favorite podcast, and of course, next week, right back here on this show, Wherever you find your favorite podcast, let me put this down on the floor. But we are back here on the air <laughs> to say that, of course, you can go through the archive, patreon.com slash cornet, $5 a month gets you access going back to the beginning in 2013, patreon.com slash cornet. Don't forget to subscribe to the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel, Approaching 375,000 subscribers, 
be one of them today. The official Jim Cornette YouTube channel, full episodes, clips of the episodes, omnibus collections, all with the very popular Travis Heckle artwork. The official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Cornette's collectibles at jimcornette.com. What's going on, Jim? They already know. At jimcornette.com. You can follow Jim on Twitter at the Jim Cornette. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. I need to go faster. Let's get out of here. Uh, 605 Super Podcast, and of course, the Wrestling News at thewrestlingnews.com or look for the Wrestling News wherever you find your favorite podcast. The Law Office of Stephen P. New, 888 692 8084. Get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. But until whenever. Well, I mean, <laughs> until, we do this every fucking day. Until in a couple of days on the experience and next week back here on this for Jim, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally ho!